This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. So hey everyone, welcome to this first episode of the Universe Within podcast. Um, just really briefly, I created this podcast. It's something I've been thinking of doing for a long time. Because a lot of this work uh, that I do, that, that my colleagues do, it's it's a very intensive process. And when people come down to do this work, they, they really go through a, just a roller coaster of a journey. And we really try and kind of pack in as much as we can in a short amount of time as we can to really try and 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 get people what they need, what they came here to receive. Um, unfortunately, with that, there's often not a whole lot of time for talking, discussing, and 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 learning about things. So, what I'm really hoping to do is to create a platform where we can share more in depth uh, about this work. Uh, so I'm really looking to, to bring on um, the people doing this work, the, the, the curanderos, the, the, the guides, the, the facilitators, the teachers, the, the people who have founded these places, um, and, and really bringing on people from all walks of life who are somehow uh, related to these fields to, to really try and build a platform where, where these ideas can really be shared and explored and, and, and learned in, in much more depth. Because there is just a wealth of information, and, and I, I don't see a lot of platforms or, or really any out there who are doing this. There's, there's a lot of people who have, who have worked with these plants who are talking about them, um, but I think it's, it's a very different experience of someone who's maybe just working with these plants on their own versus uh, the people who are actually here doing this work day in and day out. Um, and I think there's a lot of voices that, that really have a lot to say and a lot to share. So I hope you enjoy it. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. At this point, I think most people listening would agree that we're living in the midst of a worldwide awakening. Interest in religious, spiritual, and mystical practices is reaching a peak in human history, with more people than ever pursuing various spiritual paths. Take a moment to consider just how many individuals you know are voluntarily pursuing spiritual interests. I can't think of another time in history where such a trend would be more widely shared. To me, it signals something significant going on in our world. I've also been caught up in that wave and walked my share of roads seeking truth across six continents and many traditions. And as I've shared my experiences with the men I know, one subject piques men's interest more than any other, the South American plant medicine known as ayahuasca. Some of this is due to ayahuasca's mainstream popularity, especially with podcast hosts like Joe Rogan and Brian Rose mentioning it frequently on their shows. But I think there's another factor, which is reflected in men's desire for gnosis, or direct experiential knowledge of spirit. That there is a substance available that can get us to that place of knowing sparks fascination, fear, and most of all, curiosity in seeking men. And when I tell men of my many journeys, their response reflects that. I've received so many authentic questions from genuine guys 
I thought I'd bring a guest on my show who can answer them. And thankfully, I knew the perfect man. His name is Jason Grichanik, and he's a facilitator at the acclaimed Temple of the Way of Light outside Iquitos, Peru, where I attended a workshop in 2016 and where we met. He's also the host of the Universe Within podcast, a series which, as you heard, is about telling the story of ayahuasca from the perspective of its practitioners and professionals, and not just the enthusiasts. This lends a form of insight that makes a transcendent experience grounded, real, and relatable. And thankfully, that's Jason's personality, too. As you'll hear, he's also a martial artist and yoga practitioner, so he knows how to bring complex and heady topics down into the body where we all can begin to relate to them. During our three-hour conversation, we also spoke about his background and how he arrived at the temple from New York City and why he stayed. The nature of ayahuasca, what it means, where it comes from, and how best to prepare for an experience. We talked about the complex notions of being, identity, and meaning, and how they combine to produce our experience of reality as individuals, nations, and a species why it's important to avoid expectations when encountering ayahuasca, and how every person's journey will be unique, personal, and unexpected, the essential nature of personal responsibility when it comes to healing traumas from our lives and our families, and finally, the fascinating nature of plants, and how some plants we know as deadly poisons or even addictive drugs actually embody powerful healing potential. I originally conceived of this episode as a gift to you, the men that have supported this podcast, This is far and away the topic that's generated the most interest and casual conversation in my favorite social circles and has actually made me a couple friends. But as it turned out, this conversation became a gift to me to be able to listen to Jason's wisdom and to reflect on my experiences brought a new depth to some very, very meaningful times in my life. So I'm grateful to know a strong, high integrity man like Jason who embodies the values that we all hold dear and who can provide a window onto a world that has so much to teach all of us. So please join me in welcoming this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, Jason Grichanik. Jason, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure, man. I'm really excited for this conversation. And you're joining us all the way from Peru, which is really exciting. You're, you're, in, uh, you're in the Sacred Valley now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, usually I'm... I'm in the jungle. That's that's where we met uh, in the Amazon, um, outside of Iquitos, which is kind of the the big city center there. And yeah, I'm I'm kind of dividing my time between there, where I work at the the Temple of the Way of Light, which is a big plant medicine center. They they work a lot with ayahuasca, and then also dividing my time here in the Sacred Valley, where I run uh, dietas, kind of uh, workshops with um, tobacco and, and tree medicine. Mm-hmm. And I want to get into. In the worlds of plant medicine and earth medicine, there's a specific language that gets used. And I want to mm. unpack some of that language as we as we get into it. But at first, I want to know more about your background. I know that you lived in New York for a while. In one of your podcasts, you mentioned that you were a bartender. And so those are the two data points that I have of you. And then you yeah. ended up in the jungles in Peru. Uh, and I remember met, meeting you and smoking. You were smoking a cigar and the smoke wafting. And you have this jungle shaman kind of vibe about you. I'm like, who is this guy? How did he find his way into the jungle? This kind of, in a positive way, like Colonel Kurtz from, uh, from Heart of Darkness in a way, but Heart of lightness, I suppose you might say. So how did you find your way from New York City into the jungles of Peru doing what you what you were doing when we met? I think ever since, uh, I would say my, my early 20s, probably 20, I, I was very interested in spirituality, religion, esoteric practices, and 
being in New York was really interesting because I, you know, it's a, a lot of people say it's the, the, the capital of the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so one has access to, to just so many resources. And so I was, I was doing a lot of martial arts and, and yoga and, and I was just really curious. I'd, I'd go to bookshops and I didn't have a lot of money, but I just kind of like spend the day there and, and just read whatever I could. And I mean, it really seemed to me that, that at the essence, uh, all of these traditions were really pointing towards something unique and similar. And I, and I could sense that. And, and I think that's what a, a lot of these practices kind of, in, in a way, they really interested me because I, I felt like I was going into something that was touching on on something that I was looking for. But I think there was always this sense of, I had a sense of what they were talking about, but I had never really experienced it. (laughs) And it's one of these things like this very classic ideal of of gnosis. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like in the Greek language, there's actually two words for knowing. There's the word for knowing is the way we would normally think of knowing. Like Mm -hmm. I know you, or I know algebra, or I know that a tree is green. (laughs) But that's not what gnosis means. Gnosis is actually like an experiential form of knowledge that, mm-hmm. that, that doesn't come from a book or a person, but it's it's something that's known within. And so at a certain point, uh, I became very interested in plants and, and, and plant medicine, things like herbalism, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, and, and just really seeing that, that uh, I mean, traditionally plants were one of the, if not the most important form of medicine. I mean, even, even our Western pharmaceutical medicine is, is the majority of it is plant derived. Mm-hmm. So I was really curious about that. But then also I started seeing that with things like herbalism, a lot of the ways it was being used was, was still in this kind of same allopathic way of working where there was a symptom, someone was sick and you prescribed a, a certain plant to hopefully cure that. And, and I've always been a big fan of, of natural medicine and, and trying to get to the root of things. But I also noticed, I think through my own experience and practice, that there was potentially some ailments that herbal medicine <laughs> couldn't necessarily cure, especially right. Uh, things that potentially weren't just rooted in the physical body. And in a lot of holistic medicine, you have these three levels. There's the level of the, there can be illnesses of of the physical body, then there's illnesses of of the mind, emotional illnesses. And then there's this third uh, level, which they call spiritual illnesses. And, And I think for a lot of listeners, that may sound very strange, but I think even in Western medicine, you know, today there's even most Western doctors would admit that there's there's a correlation between the mind and the body. So mm-hmm. at least we know these two levels are very symbiotic. Um, but I think there's there's another level which they often talk about in in some of these potentially more ancient systems of medicine which is elements of the spirit. And, and that could be things like, what is my place in the world? Uh, who am I? What, what is the point of life? Uh, a feeling of connection, that sense of awe, which is maybe a more subtle form, but it, in, that, in that relationship of uh, body, mind, spirit, 
that's actually the root. The, the, the physical is the final manifestation. The one before that is the mind, but even before that is, is the spirit. So I, I guess I felt in a lot of these practices, there, there was still something missing. And uh, I had heard of the, the plant medicine ayahuasca, but I, I didn't really feel drawn to take it. I, I was kind of under this this belief that that everything I, I needed was inside of me and, and why take a substance from the outside if, if, if ultimately everything was on the inside. Uh, so I kind of held on to that for a while. And I had a good buddy of mine who was part of the Santo Daime Church, which is a, a really big Brazilian ayahuasca church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had known about ayahuasca through him, but I, I didn't really feel called to work with it in that way, there's there's a lot of religious aspects in that. It's it's this really it's a very Brazilian mix. It's kind of the indigenous ayahuasca practice mixed with European Christianity. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of Jesus Mary motifs, and then also it was founded by a, a black Brazilian guy who also incorporated African spiritism. So it's this really fascinating Whoa. mix. But at the time, I, I didn't feel uh, drawn to it. But then over the years, ayahuasca just, it kind of kept coming up and, and coming up and, and more and more strongly. And then it just reached a point where I, I had this sense that I, I need to work with it. I, I didn't really know why, but it, it came at a point in my life, that, you know, as you said, I was living in New York and I, I really had the sense I needed to get out, almost that the, the city was killing me, just the that lifestyle, the, the, the constant kind of being on. I mean, I remember walking down the street one day with a buddy of mine and we realized we hadn't left the city in two years. <laughs> oh, wow. So finally this calling just got really strong and I, I ended up looking at, at places in the Amazon, which is where ayahuasca is from because I, I wanted to work with it in, in the setting where it came from in, in, in kind of a more traditional practice. And I ended up at this, uh, this ayahuasca center called the Temple of the Way of Light mm-hmm. uh, as a guest. And um, it, it was just an incredibly profound experience. Uh, I, I did seven ceremonies. At that time, there were seven maestros singing. And it, it kind of opened me up to that sense of that, that there was something that could be touched with this medicine that, that couldn't necessarily be touched. And in our normal day-to-day lives. Um, And it was just an incredibly profound experience. And uh, it was very interesting, kind of serendipitous that at that time, the the Temple of the Way of Light was looking to start a second center, kind of a more long-term center where they added various integrated practices like yoga and Tai Chi, meditation, things like that. And they were looking for people to come and and help with that. And I, I had a kind of that skill set. And I, I sometimes joke that I think they thought I was maybe more advanced than I was because I, I kind of sat up in the ceremony the whole time and I didn't lose my shit, you know, and there was other people screaming and, you know, going crazy. And uh, but little did they know what was actually happening. Inside. <laughs> I just had the ability to actually sit and, 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 and keep my mouth closed. But I mean, it was just, it was a completely awe-inspiring experience, and uh, and it really 
made me want to learn more how these people were doing that work, what they were seeing, what they were experiencing, what what these medicines potentially could get at. Uh, and so I, I came back down like six months later for a year to, to kind of begin working. And and that was uh, I mean, I, I went down there in 2012. So that was, you know, eight years ago now. I just kind wow. of went thing into another and I I worked there and I just I kept going deeper into my own process. And and part of that was was really a long period of, of isolation and, and doing what's called dietas, uh, kind of learning experientially from the plants. And then at a certain point, I, I just felt this calling. Uh, a big part was actually my teacher at that time really encouraged me just to work. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was something I was feeling also. And so I, I ended up just staying and, and, and working, you know, every day working with groups. And, and that's been a tremendous uh, learning experience. I mean, obviously, there's, there's the, the work I do with and on myself, but also that process of working now with who knows, you know, probably a couple thousand people has just been tremendously uh, enlightening and in seeing other people going through similar processes. When you see in that healing kind of environment that your journey is reflected in so many others, that when you begin working and you begin, so you go through your own process of doing your work. And then when you begin leading work, you begin seeing yourself reflected in, in other people's lives. Like, oh, wow, that actually has some peace for me. And it get, begins to develop this kind of magical feeling in a way where it's like with a way that we all share similar aspects of our work in the human experience. Yeah. And it's very much uh, kind of this archetypical hero's journey. And, you know, ultimately I'm never going to have someone else's experience. Right. But that doesn't necessarily matter because all experience in a way is is a manifestation of the world of form. And, and in that world of form, there's infinite experiences. But at the root, we all share a common experience. And, and that's really, I think, what these plant medicines are getting at. And, and so everyone's experience is unique and is going to have different things come up. But at the end, it's it's kind of an archetypical experience that people are going through. And so the deeper I could go into myself, the, the more that kind of that experience became lived. And, and I, I'm, I'm able to, in a way, help or, or, or hold a space for other people who have gone through that. Uh, and it becomes easier to, to kind of see where people are at. Um, and then also, like I said, just learning through so many others, other people's experiences too. Uh, so yeah, it's been pretty amazing in that way. So what was your background in martial arts before you, before you came down to the temple? Cause I remember that you were, you were quite an elite level of fitness when I, when I met you, I presume you probably still are. And I remember now talking to you at the time and you telling me that you had a background in martial arts. So what specifically, what, what arts did you practice? I don't remember what those were. Uh, kind of a bunch. I, I've always been uh, really curious to try different things and, and kind of see what works and, and take things from different systems. So, uh, I mean, I did a little bit of uh, Taekwondo, of Judo, of Aikido, of uh, Tai Chi. Uh, I lived in Thailand for a while and I, I was Thai boxing. Um, and then most recently, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And uh 
that's that's kind of the the art now that I really feel passionate about and mm-hmm. called to. It, it just I think for me at this stage in my life, it it feels kind of like a complete system and uh, something that I just find really really beautiful. And um, it's taught me a lot. I mean, it's it's a medicine path in itself, and mm-hmm. you know I, I think it's a complete system in and of itself. And really, uh, any and everything can be learned through that too. But and and certainly that's given me a lot of insight, even in this plant work. Uh, you know, I often use references from, from martial arts, from jujitsu when, when I'm, I'm talking about things or explaining things. You're blending together a lot of themes that I think a lot of men listening will, will understand intuitively a desire for, for gnosis or knowing, uh, certainly martial arts practices, disciplined martial arts practices and feeling a higher calling to spiritual evolution. Those are the sort of men that I'm very fortunate to be connecting with and have around me at this time. So it's, it's great to get to talk to you about these things because you're weaving them together in such an intriguing way in a way that I think will be inspiring to many men to know that there is a, a a greater possibility down this path if you if you seek to explore it and you're a great example of that it took you all the way to peru mm-hmm. yeah and it, it's interesting that that word discipline i i think it's 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 so important yeah. uh and you know i think especially for for younger people especially for young men you know learning that discipline is is, is super important uh, you know i was also a boy scout and eagle scout and that really taught me a lot of discipline and um a big aspect, I think, of nature, too, or an appreciation for nature or reverence of nature. I, I just recently interviewed a, a Kerdo woman, and the Kerdos, they, they say, are descendants of the Incas, and they, they still live up in the Andes here in Peru. And really, one of their main medicines, if not their main medicine, is a reverence of nature. Mm-hmm. I mean, nature itself it can just be such a powerful healing tool. Um and also that idea of discipline is really interesting because it's the same root word as, uh, as disciple, mm-hmm. you know, so sometimes this idea of discipline, we, we maybe kind of have a negative connotation of it. Like it's, you know, someone telling me to do something or I have to be really strict and, but it's, it, it, it really, it's this idea of becoming a disciple of, of learning, of, of being open to possibilities. And, and, and that's the way we, we really learn is, is we have to be a disciple. It's kind of that, that idea of the, the Zen mind, the beginner's mind. Um, and that requires discipline. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, for sure. And that was my experience with ayahuasca as well was learning. I mean, I had done several ceremonies before we met at the temple and before I came for the the 12 day retreat, but certainly I think in the, it was either three or five ceremonies that I had done before I got there in, in the United States, I became acutely familiar with how much discipline would be needed to approach these, that it wasn't something that I could do cavalierly or casually, that preparation mentally, physically, even spiritually going into the weekends was essential for not just success in my own uh, pursuits with it, my own goals for it, but also just enjoying the process. You know, the success of the, of the, of the retreat that I would go on was entirely dependent on my preparation, which was entirely dependent on discipline. So as, as you've been through, I'm, and I feel, I feel almost, uh, I'm not sure if I'm even permitted to ask this, but how many ceremonies have you, have you done or have you worked? How many times you work with ayahuasca? Countless. <laughs> it's an interesting question. People, people often ask me that. I, I really don't know. I've, yeah. I've never kept like a running tally. But when I, uh, when I came in the beginning, I was working with it a lot. 
um, I'd say a few times a week. Um, I did a, a couple of workshops, uh, which were very intensive. And, and then through the years, I'd say usually once a year, I do a pretty intensive workshop and, um, and then through a process of dieting, which again is the yeah. traditional way that people learn to work with plants, usually going into isolation, uh, drinking a, a plant and then often drinking ayahuasca with that, uh, or, or different kind of master plants. Um, so I, I'm sure it's been a lot of times, uh, I think the, the longer I do this work, the, the less I drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the less I feel called to, but, uh, when I do, it's, it, it's kind of a process of, of really going into something very intense. And it's, it, it's one of the interesting things with ayahuasca, because I, I think a lot of people think like many things, the, the more you do something, the easier it gets. And it's, <laughs> it's kind of the opposite where the more you do it, I mean, there's obviously a familiarity with it. There's, there's a, there's a, maybe a comfortability of, of, of kind of having a sense of how the ceremonies go and things like that. But the, the, the processes themselves become more and more challenging because, you know, ayahuasca, the, it, that's a Quechua word. And, and one of the ways it's translated is vine of the dead. Mm-hmm. And from my experience, most of these plant medicines, there's always this motif of death around them. Mm-hmm. Because I think essentially what they're doing is taking us into that dying process. It's, it's a really common theme that you hear in a lot of cultures, which is the idea of any of these processes or really the idea of life is essentially to die before you die so that you can truly live. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done work with Iboga, for example, and traditionally that's, uh, you would just do a once in your life. It's an initiation experience. And there's essentially two ceremonies. There's a, there's the death ceremony. And then the following ceremony is the rebirth ceremony. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think with all of these plants, they're, they're taking us closer and closer to that point of death of, of really a complete annihilation of everything that we think to be true. And, so in the beginning, uh, you know, it can be very difficult for people. There's often a process of cleaning and clearing yeah. and kind of shifting through these belief patterns, these traumas we have, these resentments, the, the jealousy, the anger, kind of these base things that really keep us from being happy, from being whole, from being in a state of ease rather than a state of disease. Um, and it, then, and obviously this is going to depend for everyone, but this is kind of an archetypical experience. So there's in the beginning, there's, there can be a lot of cleaning and clearing, and then a lot of beautiful things can begin to open up a a real reverence and awe and, and seeing the beauty of the world and and kind of opening us to new possibilities. Um, that the more they do kind of scientific research with these plants, they see also that that's exactly what's happening is there's uh, neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, literally our brain is being rewired to open us to new possibilities. All of these kind of patterns and beliefs uh, that have been weighing us down, uh, those pathways are at least temporarily closed and new pathways open, which is, you know, infinite possibility. And so then what do we fill those with? And, and I think a lot of these plants show us the possibility that we can fill those with joy, with beauty, with love, with compassion, uh, with a sense of connection, a sense of reverence. Um, 
but if <laughs> if one keeps going uh you know ultimately one is is moving towards that that state of ultimate death which is is a complete letting go of everything you know even the beauty even the love even the sense of who i am the 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 sense of reality the the sense that i'm standing on a floor that's supporting me the the sense that i'm on an earth that's that's providing me uh you know literally every molecule of my body could be dissolved and you know, I don't care who you are. <laughs> that is a horrifying experience mm-hmm. because it's literally the end of the mind. It's the end of everything that we think uh, we know to be true. But if one, the, the deeper one is able to go into that experience, the other side of that is actually full aliveness, mm-hmm. full, full peace, full uh, appreciation. This this not seeing myself as something that's separate, which ultimately is going to make us suffer because in a sense, what we're all longing for is, is union, is home, is peace. But to get that, the closer we get to that point, the more difficult the journey becomes. Right. And so it's, you know, it, it's always kind of funny to me when, when people come down and they're like, uh, you know, what, what's your intention? And they say, ah, oh, I, I want enlightenment. I, I want peace. <laughs> It's like, okay, you're ready for that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's going to be a hell of a journey. I read a book years ago. Uh, I'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes. But the author uh, is sort of a, I would describe him as a spiritual firebrand in a way, sort of a bomb thrower. And he asserts very boldly and very strong language in the course of this book that many people, and he's speaking primarily to a Western audience, like in San Francisco, sort of more of a, a new agey kind of audience. And he's saying that, you don't want enlightenment. You say you want enlightenment, but you don't because the real quest for enlightenment is like Moby Dick, is like Ahab's quest for Moby Dick. It's ultimately a, a, a self-annihilation is what enlightenment is fundamentally. Most people want human adulthood. They want real human mm-hmm. adulthood. And so what you're talking about is sort of like stages of the journey and that people will come down to the temple or work with ayahuasca or any healing modality, and they'll seek to purify their own uh, their own psychology to emerge fully into human adulthood and, and reckon with the traumas of their childhood and perhaps even the traumas of their lineage and, and achieve a sense of peace and a, a, chance, a sense of fulfillment and direction and purpose. And then that process will have its own timeline. And then there will come a stage where that process maybe isn't enough, isn't the right way of putting it, but where suddenly there's a desire for even more unwinding of the self. And then that's the beginning of the road to and through enlightenment, perhaps with a capital E, that many people will never actually feel called towards in this lifetime. And that's okay. It's not, it's its own thing to want. Not, it, we don't all have to be going for it. And I think that's some one of the ways that I think a lot of Eastern spirituality has been misused in the West, this idea that we all need to be questing for enlightenment. We don't all need to be moving towards the exit skies. It's okay to have a, a fulfilling life as a human being on earth without needing to be uh, committed to this idea of transcending all being forever. Yeah, absolutely. And uh... You know, obviously, I, I don't know. I, I think as a as a Zen master <laughs> said very beautifully when his student asked him uh, what happens after death, he said, I don't know. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I don't think any of us really have the answer. But uh, yeah, I would imagine that 
we all return to the place where we came from. And, and that is a, a, a place of unity, a place of love, a place of bliss. And, and this life is a, is a playground where, where we get to go through those highs and lows. And some people, you know, often through their own suffering or kind of a catastrophic event may feel that calling that they're just ready to let go, you know, before they actually die. And, and but I think that is a rarity, and and you know those those are often the people that that we hear about the sages the the you know the the people who have wisdom in in the the tradition that that you experienced at the temple the Shipibo tradition uh, they have different levels of of curanderos of healers and and almost all of the ones well all of the ones who we work with they they would say their title is Onaya. And uni is their name for ayahuasca mm-hmm. in the Shipibo language. So an uni, it means gnosis. It means knowledge and experiential knowledge. So oh, wow. uni is their sacrament for gnosis. And so an unaya is one who knows, one who has gnosis, one who's experienced. But that's actually not their their highest form of a healer. There's actually two more above that. And the, the highest one is called moraya. And, and it... Uh, I'm not the best at Shipibo language, so if there's someone out there listening and I, I make a mistake, forgive me. But from from, from what I understand, the, the word moraya, it, it, it's kind of translated as this sense of one who's found. It, it's the seeker who's actually found what he's seeking. And so, but even today, <laughs> they would say there are no moraya. You know, that level of, of person doesn't exist. Uh, maybe in antiquity there was some, mm. but essentially if you ask them why there are none, they would say it's just, it's too difficult to pass. Nobody wants to do that. Mm. <laughs> Nobody wants to go out into the woods for, for 10 years and, you know, not eat and, and, and die at a plant and go through those hardships and that suffering. That's just not, there's, there's very few people who, who feel called to do that. Mm. You know, most people, they do, they want some sort of balance. They, they, they want to enjoy their wife. They, they want to enjoy plantain and fish and cookies and, uh, you know, have a somewhat normal life. Um, but there are these weird people <laughs> who somehow feel drawn to that. And, and I think it is, it's just, you know, for, for some rare people, there's, there's a longing for death. And, and I don't think it's even a, a conscious thing. It's maybe more of a subconscious thing is there's something in them that's longing to fully let go. And, 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 you know, it's a hell of a journey and kind of like in, you know, in the matrix where the guy kind of comes out and he's eating the steak and drinking the wine. And he's yeah. like, no, I'm, I'm kind of just happy eating my steak and drinking my yeah. wine. And as you said, that's okay. Like that's where most people are at because you know, why not enjoy life to that degree? Um, and, 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 and I think that's what most people are looking for is just to, to be happy. And if, if you ask the Shipibo what the point of all of this plant work is, they would say simply that it's just to be happy, you know, to, to, to experience life, like life experiences life, like animals experience life, to, to live in a state of peace, of joy, to, to really appreciate what we have and, and and when our time comes, we can we can go peacefully, saying, you know, I I, I did what I what I could, and I, I I had a family, or I gave back to my community. I was a good person, and I I I, I lived life. 
when I was in India, I did a 10 day Vipassana retreat, a Goenka Vipassana retreat. And I was struck in that experience how similar it is to ayahuasca and i'm actually i've actually uh written a very long blog entry it's probably not a blog entry right now it's twelve thousand words and by the time it's finished it'll probably be fifteen thousand words and and comparing these two modalities but one of the things that became because they have a lot in common from coming from opposite sides of the world but one of the things that became really clear doing that and that the 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 training the vipassana training that they i guess emphasize is there's a difference in path between someone who's called to be a monk uh, and someone who's called to be a householder. And the technique of Vipassana meditation can be used by a householder, meaning someone who has a career and a family, and it can be used to improve uh, remarkably the appreciation of life. And that is no less noble a path than the path of the monk, than the renunciate. And uh, I also uh, have this quote and uh, from my one of my DJ mixes from Ram Das, who was a 60, a 60s sort of spiritual leader. He wrote this famous book, Be Here Now. And he asserts that the real path of spirituality in the modern area, the era that we were heading into at the time, and now that we're fully in, is not up in the mountains. It's not to be a renunciate. It's to bring these values home and to be in the world and to blend them. And then that's maybe in the past, we would have had these Moriah out in the world, these found ones, and that may have been appropriate for the time. But I think we're heading into a different era. We're in a different era where it's necessary for the householder to bring as much spirituality into his or her life as they can. And that's almost more noble than retiring to a cave in the mountains or, you know, a hut in the jungle and leaving society behind because we need those awakened ones in our society today to pull us over to the next stage. Yeah, absolutely. And even here in the, the Amazon, this, this idea of, of, of doing a dieta, of going into isolation, of, of fasting, it's, there's a time and a place for it. And one's life is not meant to be a dieta. One is meant to go into that experience, learn from it, and then go back out into life and apply that. Because if not, it has no value. If, if, if all of the value is for selfish reasons, it's, it's not serving and it's just creating actually more of a separation. Um, my, my stepmother is Thai and, uh, one time she, you know, they're, they're, she, she's very Buddhist. And, uh, and, and at one point she went to a Buddhist monk and for some relationship advice <laughs> for my father. And, uh, and this monk was giving her advice. And I, I was just thinking like, why would you go to a monk to give you advice about a relationship? <laughs> Probably not going to know too much. Yeah. You got to go to the person who knows you know, who's, who's been in the world and perhaps the person who brings Buddhist practices, if that's your faith background into their relationship, but certainly not a monk who's like, well, I can give you some principles that I've learned, but I don't know how that's going to affect your relationship. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And those experiences, again, it, it, it goes back to this idea of gnosis. I mean, any experience that's not lived, that, that, that that's not felt and, and truly integrated into one's life is just an experience. Mm-hmm. So a, a monk talking about relationships, it, it doesn't matter what the principles are if he hasn't applied those to his life, to, you know, to a real relationship. It's, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, dating coaches or relationship coaches who aren't in a successful relationship. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yep. 
doesn't matter what they say. It's, it doesn't really apply if they're not doing it themselves. It's, you know, I mean, it's like anything like jujitsu. I mean, why would you take jujitsu advice from someone who's not really, really good at jujitsu? That would be insanity. You're certainly not going to get very good doing that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so speaking of jujitsu, we, we touched on it a little bit earlier with the need to di- bring discipline into ceremony. So let's transition a little bit into talking about the mechanics of ceremony, what it is that's being experienced and what's actually going on. Because I'm all of the opinion of, I guess, demystifying it in a way, not to demystify it into draining it of its uh, significance, but to demystify it in terms of draining it of its, um, of its sense of, I guess, oh, scary. You know, like these are very understandable, comprehensible practices that are going on that I think are going on in a, in a way that may be difficult to verbalize. But there's something very fundamentally healing that happens in these experiences. Certainly my, my retreat at the temple was one of the most profound healing experiences of my entire life. It was a turning point in my life. And I was, I was very fortunate to have the ability to pay attention to what was happening to me as I was going through it and making notes in my mind somehow, you know, while keeping the, keeping the, the work going while also not trying to check out too much into analysis of it. But it was sort of, it was really interesting watching my own mind at work in that way as I'm going through the process. But I want to demystify it in a sense so that people, um, so that people have a better sense of what's going on so they can determine whether they feel a call to it. Because my big guideline, I have two guidelines for working with ayahuasca. One is only work with someone who has been personally recommended to you. So don't just go looking on the internet for someone or show up in a ketos, you know, to work with a shaman there. And the second one is feel a genuine call to it. And by sort of demystifying it, uh, or demythology, not maybe not demythologizing it, but by de- by demystifying it, people have a better way to determine whether they feel a call to it. So let's break down the the process and what's going on there, so that men who men and potentially women who feel called to this can can find it. Yeah, <clears throat> it's it's an interesting process, and uh, right now is a very interesting time because there's there's a lot of research going into these plants. There's quite a bit now of, of research into ayahuasca. There, there's been a lot of research in, in with psilocybin, with MDMA. You know, a lot of the results are amazing. And, and, and part of that process, which I think is very important, is this kind of scientific reductionist way of, of like, hey, what's actually going on here? And, and looking at the brain and uh, looking at results. And, and these things are, are very important. Um, with a lot of this plant work, I think it 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 embodies the the duality of life. Uh, even ayahuasca itself really embodies that duality. It's it's uh, for for people who maybe aren't familiar, ayahuasca is the name of the brew that people drink, but it actually consists of two plants, uh, the ayahuasca vine, and and most often a plant called chacruna. Um, so it's a little confusing because ayahuasca is the name of the brew, but it's also the name of one of the plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Shipibo, it's a little easier. The, the brew is called uni, the, the vine is called uh, nishi, and the, the plant is called kawa. So they have separate names for all of them. But it's it's fascinating because often a lot of people, and I think there's different reasons for this. I mean, maybe if you want, we can go into it later, but, but there's often this idea that, that ayahuasca is, is like a feminine energy or people refer to it as the mother, the grandmother. But for the Shipibo, it's not. For the Shipibo, 
it's the combination of two plants of the polarity and the the vine the ayahuasca vine they would say represents the masculine energy the 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 female part uh, the kawa plant uh, rep- represents the, the feminine energy and it's the combination of those two energies that allows uni uh, or gnosis to happen so uh you know it's it's a complete system in that way and it I, you know, I think to a large degree that the plant work itself embodies that duality. There's, I interviewed my my friend Brian uh, recently on a podcast, and he's 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 he has a very high command of Shipibo knowledge, and it, it's fascinating speaking with him. But uh, you know, he brought up this idea that that a lot of the work of the Cordandero is very scientific mm-hmm. and that's not something we necessarily think about we a lot of times when we think of shamans we just think of like someone flailing around and kind of mumbling and <laughs> you know doing these weird chants and they're just kind of praying and hoping something's going to happen uh but that's very much not the case they're they're working in a in a highly highly scientific way mm-hmm. um everything they're doing from their intentions to the the resonance of their voice to how they make the medicine i mean it's a, it's a very scientific process so on the one hand a huge part of this work is very scientific it is so many things can be spoken of and try, we can try and understand it. And as you said, deconstruct it. And then on the other hand, there's part of it that's just a mystery. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, no matter how much we, 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 we think we know, part of what this medicine is getting at is what's beyond the mind, what mm-hmm. the mind can never know. And, and that's what gnosis is. It's, it's this experience that can never be known by the mind. It, it can only be experienced. So having said that, <clears throat> you know, to, to kind of deconstruct what's going on, uh, I mean, I think in, in general, it's, it's, it's very important that someone feels a calling to work with these plants. Uh, if someone doesn't feel that calling, um, they're going to be at a very big disadvantage. Yeah. And, 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 you know, even, even in our Western medicine, I think, again, any, any allopathic doctor will tell you if the patient doesn't have faith or they don't believe the medicine's going to work, they're at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's something about that belief, that faith that's, that's real. And, you know, we can extrapolate that to anything. I mean, jujitsu, you know, if I don't think jujitsu is going to work, that's going to affect how I practice. If I always have doubts, if I'm never really giving a hundred percent, I'm going to get out of it what I put into it. But if I really believe it, if I give everything I have to it, if I have faith in the, the system, if I have faith in the instructor, then that's going to show that's, that's going to emerge in, in, in what I get out of it. So having that, having that faith, having that determination is very, is very important. Uh, you know, is there room for doubt? A hundred percent, you know, blind faith isn't necessarily the best thing either. It's always good to, to question things, to, to come from a place of curiosity. Um, and, 
So, you know, if one does have that calling, again, that calling could be very strong. Like, like I was talking about earlier with my experience, that calling, there was just something in me that was very, very strong. And so I knew I had to try it for other people that the calling may not be that strong. It, it may be that they're, they're really suffering in a way. Uh, and, and they've heard that this medicine may be able to help them. Um, and so it's simply this thing of, of kind of like a leap of faith. Like I've tried all these other things. It's not really working. People seem to be saying this is effective. The research seems to be showing it's really effective. Uh, I mean, right now, MAPS, which is a big American organization, they've they've been working with MDMA with uh, war veterans. And uh, two out of three war veterans after going through the, the protocol are PTSD free. I mean, that's incredible yeah. that there's never been anything that's even remotely close to that. Right. You know, most of the kind of the allopathic medicine is simply trying to make manageable the symptoms, but they're always on those medications and those symptoms are always there. They have flare ups, you know, two out of three people, their symptoms are gone. They are PTSD free. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so having that calling is really important. And then, uh, once someone has that calling, you know, as you said, finding, finding a place that's, that's reputable where, where they feel safe, where, where they feel like they're in good hands, because that's very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as we were talking about, essentially this, this, the, these plants are, are a process of dying of, of letting go all of these things that are no longer serving us. And, you know, depending on our life situation, who we are, you know, what kind of traumas we've had, that may be a really <laughs> big experience for people. Yeah. Uh, some people have probably heard that, you know, an, an ayahuasca ceremony or workshop can be 10 years, 50 years, a lifetime of psychotherapy in yeah. a very short session. But with that is the equivalent of intensity. <laughs> you doing it all at <laughs> you know, once. Yeah, it doesn't come for free. You yeah. know, you're, you're packing all of that work into a very short amount of time. So that's where people often describe that they have these really profound experiences, these life-changing experiences. But there's, there's an intensity that comes along with that. So with that intensity, it's really important that the person feels that they're in good hands uh, so that they're really able to let go and to release into that experience. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm worried that the cops are going to come in or this, this Cordondero is, you know, going to molest me or, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's, he's putting evil spirits in me that that's going to create blocks, walls that, that really don't allow me to go really deeply into the process. So, so that's super important. And then, you know, in, in terms of what's going on, uh, all of these plants, so all of these plants that we would consider master plants or teacher plants, and there's a number of them, uh, ayahuasca, tobacco, iboga, wachuma or San Pedro, peyote, uh, coca, they all, I think, are complete systems in and of themselves. They, right. they all have the power to heal on all of these levels, uh, but they all work in different ways. And uh, traditionally, people would maybe only have access to, to one of these medicines. And so, but that's all one would need. You know, every culture, the, the more I look into it, every culture has had some plant or potentially mushroom uh, that they've worked with in a, in a religious way. Um, 
kind of on a side note, there, there, there was a really interesting book that was just published called The Immortality Key, mm-hmm. uh, where this guy spent the last like 10 or 20 years researching that even Christianity, most likely at its roots, they were using a plant brew. Uh, oh, wow. It was wine that was... Uh, brewed with these very entheogenic plants like henbane, mandrake, uh, black nightshade, hemlock, which have the ability to to put us into this altered state of consciousness. So um, whatever plant one is working with, I mean, we we can talk about ayahuasca uh, because that's kind of where we're coming from. But so when one goes to a ceremony, well, even, even leading up to that, uh, there's, there's usually a process of really going inward, uh, really changing one's lifestyle to prepare for that journey. And some of these things like dietary restrictions, no sex, no alcohol, introspection, uh, a lot of these things have a, a really real benefit. You know, certain foods can be counterindicated uh, for these plants. Having that sexual energy inside you is very important, like not releasing that and already being in a semi-weakened state. Because again, if this is a hero's journey, you need all of the strength you can have. And right. uh, you know, if you're <laughs> if you're drained from, you know, an all-night sex binge and coke binge, you're not going to be <laughs> in, in a physical or mental place where, where you're going to have the ability to go into these medicines. Right. Um, and then I think a, a, another big part of that is, is this idea of, uh, in, in Shipibo, they call it Akinananti or in, in Quechua, Aini. And, and it's usually translated as this idea of reciprocity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and in, in more of the, maybe the the indigenous language, what they would say is that the spirits of these plants, they, they require us to give something of ourselves. You know, the, these, these medicines are going to give us so much more than we could potentially even imagine. But what am I willing to give it? What am I willing to do? Because so much of, of how we think of things is, oh, well, I'm just going to take a pill. I don't need to do anything and it's going to get rid of my illness. And these plants aren't like that. It, no. it requires work. You know, it requires us to really go in and to see where have I been off? Where have I been contributing to this? Because so much of, of, our, of our illness is we, we, we love <laughs> to point the finger. It was my mother's fault. It was my father's fault. It's my partner's fault. It's society's fault. It's it's the color of my skin's fault. It's the government's fault. It's it's everyone's fault but mine. And it, you know that can be triggering for some people to hear. And it's not to say the thing itself isn't real or it didn't happen. You know, if 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 I had a really rough childhood and my father was yelling at me and beating me, you know, that's real. That has an impact. No one's going to take that away and say that was easy. You deserve that. Not at all. But the reality is that it's real. That is a part of you now. But as long as we continue to hold on to that and, and, and in a sense, continue to live that by, by attaching to it, by feeding it, then we're doing the same thing to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and the only way that we overcome that is we have to be willing to let that go. And that requires forgiveness, that requires compassion, that requires understanding. And ultimately, 
you know, that forgiveness, that letting go, it's not for the other person, although that's going to have a tremendous impact on the other person, but it's for us. If we want to be free, we have to be willing to be free. And that requires going into that, understanding that, accepting that, and then seeing it's no longer serving us and, and letting it go. So, you know, part of this this kind of preparation for these ceremonies is really a reciprocity of I'm going to be receiving these things from the plants. Am I willing to give something back? Am I willing to give up these things to really show that I'm ready? You know, I'm I'm willing to give. I'm I'm kind of humbling myself. I'm coming open. I'm coming strong, ready, prepared. And and that may sound strange to people, but in a lot of these traditional uh, cultures, uh, for example, I, I've worked a little with this uh, Aruaco uh, gentleman. That's uh, their group of people in the, the the north of Colombia in the Sierra Nevada, mm. and it, it's really funny because if if you ever ask him, like, like what's the answer to my problem, and you know, you could have a million problems. <laughs> But it's very funny because his answer is essentially always the same. He would say something like, you haven't made a payment. Oh, wow. And he's not talking about, you know, you need to go and pay someone physical money. But it's this idea of reciprocity. Yeah. You haven't given anything back. You you haven't done what you need to do to bring balance. You know, that essentially the world is 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 a place of balance. And and you know, every action we take can be an action that creates an imbalance or it can be an action that creates a balance. But, you know, we, we take so much, uh, you know, from the earth, we take air and we take water and we take food and these experiences and shelter. But what are we doing to give back? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's much of this same mindset of like pointing the finger. It's this fault. It's this person's fault. It's this. But what am I doing to give back? What am I doing to create a balance? And so a big part, again, of that, that preparation, I, I think, is this idea of giving back, uh, this idea of I'm willing to give in order to receive. So that's that's kind of, a, you know, one of the big initial parts of the process is, is this idea of really preparing oneself for the ceremony. Because this work, like ayahuasca with all of these plants, they're always done in a ceremonial context. Uh, you know, the, the, these... These aren't plants that one would take recreationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not to say one can't, uh, you know, it's not to demonize that. But again, if one really wants to go deep into the, this work, it's, it's, a sen- it's basically essential that a ceremonial space is created, a, a ritual space, a sacred space where we're saying, this is my opportunity where I'm going to go in and I'm going to do really deep work. And, you know, that's also, I think, something that's really lacking in a lot of the societies we come from is is taking time away and, and really going deeply into something. And uh, so, so that's a that's a really important aspect. Um, in, in, in another another guy I work with, he's also from Colombia, from this group called the, the Tubu, before they work with any plant, they always tell the story of that plant. And that, that story may be an hour long, two hours long, <laughs> mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. Every time you work with that plant, the story is told. 
And one is because I think it creates a reverence for the plant. It creates a respect for the plant. But you're also de facto making it a ceremonial space. You have to sit down and you have to listen to that story. And and you understand by hearing that story over and over, what is this plant? What is it for? What do I need to do to honor it, to respect it? What happens if I if I don't do that? How do I make a payment? How do I make amends? How do I bring balance? So that that's a really important part of the process. And so going into a ceremony, uh, you know, often this work, it, it's actually not done alone. And it's, again, one of these paradoxes. Uh, there's the plant, there's us, and then there's the the practitioner, the, the, the healer, the curandero. And all three of those elements are essential to the, the, the experience. If I'm not fully prepared, I'm not going to get as much out of it. If the medicine isn't really prepared, it's not going to have the same effect. If the curandero isn't highly skilled, we're not going to get the same effect out of the experience. So all three of those things have to really be firing. They, they really have to be in alignment and with an intention of this is what we're going to do. We're going in to do really deep work. And um, <clears throat> so there's those three factors. There's the ceremony. And then again, it's often done in a group setting. And, uh, you know, part of that is just you know, if you're a practitioner, if all you're doing is one-on-one -on -one work, you don't have the ability to help as many people. It's much more difficult. Uh, often this work was uh, done in a more community setting. So that that group setting can be very valuable. I I did another interview recently with a, a friend of mine, Joe Tafour, who, who's, who kind of founded an ayahuasca center, which is, it's, it's a very good place um, called Niue Dao. And he, he said it really well, and it, it kind of stuck with me. Um, he was quoting, I think it was this African curandero, I, I don't remember his name or exactly where he was from, but he was saying that it's so much of our ailments that, that what this guy sees, they come from a lack of three things. They come from a lack of community. They come from a lack of a connection to nature. And they come from a lack of a connection to spirit, mm -hmm. of spirituality. And that really struck me because I, I realized that's something I see a lot in, in, in the work I do is a lot of people who come to this work, they're coming from big cities. Uh, they're, they're, you know, very work oriented they they their minds are <laughs> potentially very developed but at the same time potentially out of balance mm -hmm. and i think a lot you know even something like atheism it, it comes from this idea that ultimately the human mind can know everything and if i don't if i don't know it if it's not tangible then it must not be real right. But that's also operating from a very limited portion of the mind, which I think these plants very much have the ability to open us up towards. You know, we know now uh, through, through equipment that what we see in the light spectrum is a fraction of what actually exists. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't see x-ray, we can't see gamma ray, and yet it exists, it's real. 
if we if we have this equipment, we see that these things exist, but we can't see it with the human eye. And I think what these plants open us to is they allow us to see things, to experience things that are there, but just in this normal reality with our senses, we don't have the ability to experience these things, and yet they're no less real. Mm-hmm. So what this African uh, shaman was saying, uh, I find to be really true. And you know, a lot of us are disconnected from nature, which is is a very powerful teacher. Even, you know, like from the U.S. where we come from, a lot of what the founding fathers built these principles on were these enlightenment ideals. And the 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 idea was that nature was the greatest teacher. That that by observing nature, we could understand these universal principles and that's a very powerful teacher Mm -hmm. Uh, community you know more and more people are feeling separate they're feeling isolated they they drive in their car to work and they're in a cubicle and they come home to their apartment or their house and there's this sense of disconnection and that causes a tremendous amount of suffering. And then also this connection to spirit, the sense that, you know, so many people, they just work to get these tangible things, to get a promotion, to get the newest iPhone, to get a new car, and that these things should bring me happiness. Mm-hmm. And yet there's something beyond that, that, that people I think more and more are realizing that's lacking, that's causing them to suffer. So the idea behind that is this sense of community is, very important. And, and a lot of these ceremonies are done in a communal setting. And, you know, probably as you experienced in your workshop, one of the most powerful healing modalities in that group experience is actually the group itself. The sense that there's this collective journey, people feel a tremendous amount of compassion towards their neighbor, towards the group this sense of seeing oneself and all of these other people of of seeing that, you know, I'm not alone. My journey isn't alone. My suffering isn't alone. All of these people have their own experiences and they're equally as valid, equally as powerful. And, and kind of going on this collective journey is incredibly powerful. And, and I, you know, I think often if one was to do this work alone, is kind of another jujitsu metaphor, but one would actually tap out really early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for say, sure. It's too much, like I can't do it. But when you begin to look around and you see all of these other people sitting there doing the work, it gives you the strength to keep on doing it. And there's going to reach a point where every single person is thinking the exact same thing. Right. I can't do it, you know, but then they look at you and you give them strength. And so it's this very powerful process. So also, the group setting is very important. Uh, and, and again, and then there's the work of the, the, the curanderos or the healers. And, and again, they're working in a very scientific way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I think it can be really powerful to do this work, to actually give yourself time, whether that's a week or two weeks or a month. Um, because ultimately, there's a process that's happening. You know, one person could do one ayahuasca ceremony and have an amazing experience. But it's kind of like you're throwing all your eggs in one basket. It could also be a terrifying experience and you emerge maybe more traumatized than when you came in because all of the preparation work hasn't been done. So, you know, kind of archetypically with the Shipibo, how we're working like at the temple, uh, you know, let's say we're working with five ceremonies or six ceremonies. Each of those ceremonies, 
there's there's something that's happening. So the 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 first ceremony, and you know, again, these can change depending on the person, but kind of as as an archetype, what's happening is the first ceremony. It's usually a small dose because again, we don't want to throw someone into the void. That's not going to help them. Right. <laughs> you know, we we want to we want to hopefully gently introduce them to the medicine where they feel comfortable with it. And the, 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 the healers are able to diagnose, to see, because uh, that's one of the qualities of ayahuasca, especially for the, the one who's working with it, is to open the vision, to allow them to see, to allow them to diagnose. Mm-hmm. So they're seeing in their mariación, which is kind of the word for the, the it literally translates to dizziness, but it's, it's the effect that ayahuasca gives. One becomes uh, almost like seasick. Uh, you know, one feels a bit nauseous, the world may be spinning, um, but one is going into the effect of the ayahuasca, which one could say is also a very dreamlike effect when it's kind of allowing us to enter this dreamlike state, but we have one foot in this reality, but we also have one foot in the reality that these medicines are opening us up to. So in that, in that, uh, in that altered state, the, the coranderos are able to see or to experience what this person they're, they're working with is going through. Mm-hmm. Are they depressed? Uh, do they have family trauma from their childhood? Uh, is there, sometimes they would say like their spirit has gone away, which means, you know, they're, they're not connected. They, they've lost that sense of purpose or connection. Uh, do they have fear? Do they have trauma? Do they have anger? Or are they jealous? Is, is their relationship not working? Like what's causing this person to, to not be well? So that may be the first ceremony. The, the second, the third ceremony maybe a process of cleaning and clearing. So beginning to, to, to remove these, these dense energies, these things that are holding us back. And then the participant under the effects of the ayahuasca is seeing these things like, Oh yeah. Like I'm really angry. I've been holding on to this thing where this thing happened to me in the past and this is causing X, Y, and Z, or I feel really lost or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm holding on to this resentment to my, to my parents or to, to, to my partner. Uh, I haven't, I haven't been living my life the way I know I can. I, I've been lazy. I, I, I haven't been disciplined. And these are the things that are holding me back. And again, there, there can be many things that arise in, in that stage, but beginning to, to clean and clear those things. And then, you know, let's say the, the fourth, the fifth ceremony or process of, of putting things back into place. So, you know, much like when we clean our house, you, you know, first we have to clean and clear. First, we have to diagnose. We have to look around and say, OK, this house is dirty. <laughs> yeah. So then I have to I have to clean and clear it. You know, you, you start to you start to dust, you, you start to scrub, you start to polish. And then there's a there's this thing of putting things back together. Okay, you know, maybe now I, I move the furniture. I, I find something that's more conducive to how I want to live my life. I start to put the pieces back together. Uh, the Shipibo, as you probably remember, they they have these patterns. They call them kanur. They often make these really elaborate like telas, these tapestries. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they have these intricate designs and, you know, kind of essentially almost like our DNA, you know, we, we all have these unique patterns, but those patterns can become distorted. There's pieces missing or out of place. And essentially they're trying to weave that pattern back together so that it's beautiful, so that it's in harmony. So the pieces fit. 
And then uh, kind of the final ceremony they, they would call an arcana. An arcana, it can be translated as like a protection or a, a sealing. So once all this work is done, you just don't want to kind of throw someone out into the world in this really sensitive state. You want to close them, to seal them so that the work is is there. They would often say like they're planting a seed of ayahuasca in you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that when you go back out, you then have the ability to cultivate that. And that's also what they're doing in that final ceremony is they're opening us to new possibilities. Again, much like this idea of neurogenesis, neuroplasticity, these things have been clean, clean, they've been cleared. There's been realignment. The work is sealed in. But now, again, <laughs> is your part. <laughs> The medicine has done all of these things. The, the, the healers have helped to guide the medicine to do all of these things. And now it's up to you. It's up to you. What do you want to do with this? Do you want to just have it as an experience, which again is very profound. You know, even if you did nothing, that experience will always be with you. And, and, and that's a very profound thing. But if we just leave it as an experience, then that's what it is. It's just another experience. So the idea, once one finishes that process, is is beginning to implement all of the things that one learned, and and we that's often referred to as integration, the integrative experience, how to take all of these things and integrate them back into one's life, and and that can be really easy for some people. That can be super difficult for some people. Uh, it can be both difficult and easy. There can be peaks and valleys. But that's really the process of then, you know, taking all of these things and, and beginning to change one life, one's life. Because one has this, in a sense, gnosis, this experience of, you know, so many things can happen. And again, it's going to be very, very unique and very different for people. So it's also important not to get hung up on something, you know, to to watch a video of someone else's experience and and want that experience because inevitably that experience isn't going to happen to you. No two people are going to experience the same thing because we're all unique. We're all different. But whatever the medicine gave you, whatever it taught you, then taking that and, and beginning to implement that back into one's life. So I mean, in, in short, although that wasn't very short, but in long, that's, <laughs> that's kind of, uh, I, I would say maybe deconstructing a bit what's going on. That's really fantastic. And, and you did exactly what I wanted, which is I, I picked an imprecise word. I didn't want to demystify it uh, because I think the mystery and the magic is an important aspect of it. The word that I was struggling for is desensationalize it because ayahuasca has emerged into the public consciousness to some degree through, you know, Joe Rogan and it's in the New York Times and The Economist. And I think Chelsea Handler, you know, if I, uh, I think she's a UK talk show host, has talked about it. It's out there. And there's a lot of discussions of of psychedelics, entheogens, plant medicines, earth medicines generally that takes on this kind of very sensationalized, almost Hollywood kind of quality. And to use like a a jujitsu metaphor, imagine if you were to see, you know, you see a movie where someone's a jujitsu practitioner. It's like, oh, wow, that sounds really cool. It's like, well, you know, the actual process of going and learning to roll jujitsu will be very different from what you see in the film. And you have to strip away Mm -hmm. the sensationalism of it and break it down to some of the more digestible mechanics while still making room for the mystery and the magic of it to occur. And I think for people, 
people to be able to make. And I, I just can't emphasize how great it was to listen to all that and how important everything that you said is, because I don't think that there are a lot of people, I certainly don't know of any, who are talking about ayahuasca in that way, that are talking about it in a way like, this is actually what you're getting into. It's not this sensationalized process, you know, like Terrence McKenna talking about the DMT elves, where it's like, oh, that's interesting. I'm sort of curious about that. It's like, no, no, if you go into this out of a, just a sense of curiosity, you know, as opposed to a calling, you're likely to get a lot more than you bargained for and you might not necessarily enjoy it. But by being informed up front that this is a sacred healing uh, practice, that there is a sense of paying with oneself, paying with one's effort, paying with one's discipline to approach this like a wise and a, a wise and a loving teacher, that it creates a completely different feeling going into it. And you have to know that first before signing up for something like this. Because if if that does, if that idea doesn't call to you, then you know not to do it. But if it does, then you know how to approach it in such a way that you're set to get the most out of it. And it may not appeal to everyone, but certainly when it's portrayed like in, in, the, in a movie kind of way, in a sensationalized way, that's designed to appeal to as many people as possible. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. But when you're coming to plant medicines and earth medicines as sacred and powerful as this, that's a recipe for... Uh, I don't want to, that's a recipe for an unfulfilling experience and potentially a lot more than you want. If you don't know what's going in, if you know what it is going in, then you're likely to get so much more out of it than you otherwise would. So I appreciate everything you said. And that's exactly what I wanted to create for people as I wanted the men listening to be able to hear, this is what it's all about. Um, so that you know, like, oh, wow, that actually sounds like it could benefit me in a very powerful way without taking away from the mystery of how it works. How does it work in such a way that I drink this brew of a, of, a, of two plants found in the Amazon and somehow at the end of uh, five or 12 days or however long it is, or even potentially one night, I'm able to reckon with the ghosts of my past. I'm able to recognize things in myself that I had never seen before and to release it or take responsibility for it or integrate it or whatever. How do How is it that drinking a thing a enables my mind through connection with other people and a shaman or a curandero to do that. Well, who knows, but that is what happens. And, and, and so without attempting to take away from the mystery and the magic and the power of it to also understand the discipline and the structure of it. And you know, I think a lot of, I'm reading Jordan Peterson's book, 12 rules for life right now. And he talks a lot about order versus chaos about these two, these two, uh, principles of Taoism and in the, in the, in the yin yang symbol that they represent order and chaos and chaos is the magic of an ayahuasca ceremony. But then let's talk about the order as well, because that's just as fundamental to what's going on uh, in the ceremony itself. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one thing I, I forgot to mention is uh, this idea of purging mm. and um, it, it, it's much like this idea again, that, that ayahuasca is called vine of the dead because uh, so much of what's happening is this purging away of all of these things that no longer serve us. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, it, sometimes we'll, we'll use the analogy of like an onion, you know, it's, it's peeling away these layers. Each of these layers is, is a dying away of something again, something that's no longer serving us. And it's this really interesting thing because I think a lot of people have this idea with, with these medicines that it's like, it's, it's adding on to me, you know, I had this experience and then it makes me greater. I, I have more knowledge. And, and, 
you know, if anything, I would say it's doing the opposite. It's stripping us away of all of these ideas we have, all of these concepts, all of this this mind that think it, it knows, it can control, that it has the answers. And it's taking us back more and more to a childlike state. It's almost like regressing us. And then even beyond a childlike state to the state of, of in the womb, the, the state of pre-womb, the, the state of non-existence. And with each of those sheddings of those layers, it's it's a purging process. And uh, in, in many of these languages, they actually refer to ayahuasca in Spanish as la purga, the, the, the purge. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, some maestros would, would even say, uh, one guy I work with who I like a lot, his name is Nelson, he would say, if, if, you know, if you're working with ayahuasca and what you want is these visual experiences, go to the movies because mm-hmm. you'll get a visual experience. But what we're working on is a very deep healing. And that often requires purging. And purging can happen in many ways that the most common, the well, the most well known is, is a, is a, is a physical vomit uh, that, that we're vomiting out essentially our sickness. And that may seem really strange to people. Uh, but I remember the first time or the, the, the first uh, workshop I did with ayahuasca, uh, I, I didn't vomit until like the, the fourth ceremony, I think. And, but I felt it was like this thing building and building and building, but there was also this resistance in me that didn't want to release it. Cause I was actually, I think afraid of releasing it. But then one night after ceremony, I went back to my, my tombo, my little hut, and I was laying down and, and the effects were still very strong. I was still very in it. And I felt this thing building and building and building. And, and finally, I just, I, I had this sense that I needed to get up out of bed and I went out onto my balcony and I stood over my balcony and I started purging. And it felt like, you know, copious volumes of things were coming out. <laughs> But when I actually looked at it, almost nothing physical came out. And yet there was this very deep sense within me that I had purged out something very dark, Mm -hmm. something that was 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 holding on to me and that no longer served me. And it was one of the most liberating experiences of releasing this thing. And, and that's a huge part of, of this plant work is, is this idea of purging. And again, that can happen in many ways. It can be crying. It can be laughing. It can be, uh, you know, the, the whole range of, 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 uh, of a spectrum. And, you know, as you were saying, for, for some people like, like Terrence McKenna, he talks to elves, you know, <laughs> that's his thing. That's, yeah. there's something for him that's that there's something being learned there there's there's something that's that's potentially being healed there and again that that's a very common archetypical experience people are shot off into the astral plane and and they feel like they're speaking to spirits or different entities or their own higher consciousness or god or you know often a lot of this is it's through the lens that we we see the world, which is very fascinating too. Is one of the interesting things I remember when I first started doing this work is, you know, for example, if if someone has this very strong idea that ayahuasca is a is a female spirit or a female energy, it's much more likely in their ceremony that they're going to speak to a, a female spirit. <laughs> uh, it was it was fascinating seeing people come from India. And so much of their experience was 
the archetype of this Hindu mythology, communicating with Shiva, experiencing Maya, experiencing Brahman, the the world, how they saw it, ayahuasca showed them. It, it, it speaks in a language that people understand. You know, even working with Shipibo, it communicates to them in Shipibo. <laughs> because they speak Shipibo. Mm-hmm. The Ashaninka, uh, ayahuasca doesn't communicate to them in Shipibo. It communicates to them in Ashaninka. Mm-hmm. And so whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, it's communicating to you in, in the lens that's going to have the most impact. And often, or or maybe even always, we're never going, we, we can't have the idea that we already know how the medicine is going to work. Right. Again, that's coming from that mind that thinks it knows, that, that wants to control. But if we already knew the answer, we wouldn't need to take the medicine. We already have the answer. Mm-hmm. So almost inevitably, these medicines are going to present themselves in a way that we didn't expect and that it doesn't maybe even in the moment make sense. But that's actually, I think, very valuable because that kind of shakes the mind out of its normal ways of thinking. It makes someone uncertain. And in that uncertainty, that's where a lot of really profound change can happen. You know, another really common experience that someone can have, again, these things, they they change depending on the person, the situation, even within one's experience. You know, you could work with ayahuasca this year and have a a very particular type of experience and work with it the next year and have a completely different experience. And it even depends on the ceremony. You know, one ceremony to the next can be very, very different. You know, another really common thing that can happen, which I think can be good to let people know so that if it happens, maybe they're able to to, to see it from this lens. But uh, sometimes a common experience someone can have is they drink and seemingly nothing happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so then they'll they'll come up to the maestro or the facilitator and, and they'll, they'll, they'll start saying like, this medicine isn't working. It's shit. You know, I paid all this money. Like what's happening? Like, this is bullshit. I can't believe this. From the maestro's point of view, from the facilitator's point of view, the medicine is working. <laughs> yeah. It's working very well. The anger is coming out. The expectation is coming out. The desire for control is coming out. And those are all of the things that inevitably are holding that person back. How do I know? Because they're telling me, mm-hmm. they're showing me through their actions, exactly the things that are holding them back. The anger, you know, the, the, the fear that this isn't going to work, the expectation that I know how it's going to work and it's not working how I want it to work. Therefore, I'm unhappy. Well, that's the same thing that's happening in their life. That's why they're miserable because <laughs> they're trying to control. They have expectation. There, there's anger there. You know, nobody ever comes up and they say, well, this medicine isn't working. It's amazing. It's beautiful. I feel feel at peace. (laughs) So, you know, that's another way that these medicines can work. And again, they're often going to work in ways that we don't expect. But that's where really having trust in the medicines and the process is important. Because if one is able to shift the focus of the mind and to see, ah, okay, I understand. Yes, I see now how it's working. That's often the gateway for then potentially the next ceremony where a huge shift or transformation happens. You know, it's like we have to we have to hit our head against the wall 
and then realize I'm hitting my head against the wall. And once we stop doing that, then the wall disappears and, you know, beauty can emerge. So Mm -hmm. I remember very clearly during my ceremonies, having these profound visions, you know, big clocks turning in the cosmos and rivers of waterfall, rivers of light flowing through my body and, and things like that. And I remember thinking to myself how so many people come to ayahuasca looking for, quote unquote, that spiritual experience and end up finding healing and trauma and pain and purging. And or even in the situations that you describe, the medicine not having any visible, visual, physical effect at all. And I remember as I was reflecting on on that uh, sort of spectrum earlier, or sorry, later after the fact, I realized that, you know, when people who come to ayahuasca seeking the spiritual experience and they have whatever experience they're going to have, ultimately, that is the spiritual experience. A spiritual experience is not something that is out in the cosmos. That's a mistaken idea that probably has roots somewhere in the in the 60s if I had to pin it to something like that of where this idea came from. The spiritual experience is to root down further into your lived experience every day. You are having a spiritual experience right now. We just don't conceptually call it that. Like life is a spiritual experience. Transcending the, the body is a spiritual experience. You are a spirit having a spiritual experience. You're a body having a spiritual experience. I forget what the saying is. But this idea that whatever happens to you when you go there, that's the physical, the spiritual experience. And even though I'm blast, even though I blast that in the cosmos in some moments, I didn't mean to be dismissive or disrespectful. But my thought at the time was, those are cool fireworks. So take me back into myself, take me back into into the past and into the history, so that I can experience, I guess, my own healing and, tr- and transformation. I forget the language that I used at the time, but the idea of that that being out there in the cosmos was not any better or worse than being inside myself and was not any better or worse than the morning after when the effects had worn off. It was all the totality of the same thing. And to go in to ayahuasca with expectations that it's going to be a certain way, even this conversation, I feel the need to say that if ayahuasca is one thing, it's predictably unpredictable. And any uh, experience that I relate or experience that you relate from ourselves or someone else may not necessarily be what someone else experiences and not to have our conversation mold your perceptions of what it's going to be that the ability to go in with a with an intention and, and an intent which i would like to get to and be open to the magic of how that's going to occur is so very important and not to say that it must be x or it must be y or it's unfulfilling no accept the moment for what it is in ceremony in the same way that you accept the moment for what it is in life and these are two different aspects of spiritual experience which may be a difficult thing to grasp because life in the everyday world seems so mundane but it's only through habitual uh perception that we see it that way because we can see this very moment as transcendent and i like to think that ayahuasca helps train that because even sometimes the most difficult or boring moments i suppose you might say in a ceremony when everything kind of settles down you've come down off the wave you know that has that's pregnant with significance in a way if we just learn to see it like that. Yeah, and, and that's so important, you know, just again, emphasizing that that every single person is unique. And so every person's experience is going to be absolutely unique. No two people are ever going to have the same experience. So, you know, even the idea to come in with an expectation of thinking, you know, the experience, it's, it's not going to happen. That's your experience will never be someone else's. There can be similarities, there can be connections, but ultimately it's, it's going to be unique. And 
you know, again, certainly we can be shot out into the astral plane. We can be, we can travel to other, you know, galaxies, solar systems, universes, and, and take things back from that. I mean, that, that happened to me in, in, in my first uh, ayahuasca workshop. But, you know, really what I took from that was just this sense of awe, this mm-hmm. sense of humility, this sense of, you know, I thought I knew some things, but this medicine is showing me that there it's, it's limitless, the possibilities. It, it just left me with a sense of humility of this beauty that I saw in this experience. But again, how do I emerge from that? Can I see that beauty in my day-to-day lives? Like, can I see that beauty in the tree? Can I see it in, in someone's eyes? Can, can I see it in myself? And can I cultivate that? Because that's, that's where the real power comes from is if I can take that experience and bring it back into my life. And that was ultimately the role of the, the, the really good curanderos was to put themselves out into these, you know, very potentially challenging, uh, situations, you know, because again, going out into the universe, I mean, that may sound beautiful, but then the fear arises, well, do I come back? Like, how do I navigate this? If I'm riding the wave of creation, I mean, that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a wave to surf. (laughs) I I remember seeing some of these videos of like these guys surfing these, I don't know, I mean, like skyscraper tall waves and just thinking like, my God, that's, that's crazy. Well then take that times 10 million. You know, that's, that's going to humble you. That's, that's, that's going to be, that's going to test people's limits. So, but the thing is, what can one, can one go into that? And then what can one take back? And, yeah. and, and, and that's, yeah, that's, that's super important. Yeah. These, these experiences are beautiful and they're profound and they're transformative to witness them and they can't ever be taken away. The things that I've seen, but without deriving meaning from them they're just experiences they're 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 cool fireworks in a way but what what is what is the significance and like a dream why am i being shown this what is this teaching me about myself even in the reflection of the universe if i'm being shown some great universal truth in some gnosis sense what is this teaching me about myself and what can i bring to the world what can i bring to my life what can i bring to the people around me that i know and that i love and that i care about how can I give this significance if the significance of it isn't immediately apparent? And that's so vital going into this work. You know, that's a, that's such an important point that I think doesn't get pushed enough. That the, the healing point is very, very important. Uh, and also there's the transcending part as well. But ultimately, we do have to come back into our bodies and we carry with us these sets of experiences that we then carry out from the temple or whatever facility into the world. What are we taking with us when we leave? And maybe we don't have the answers. And this is something you could speak to, perhaps. Maybe we don't even have the answers right away. Certainly on my own my own workshop, there were some experiences that I think probably took a couple years for me to understand the meaning of, which is one of the most profound things. Like, I don't have an answer to this question, but then I'll experience something later in a totally sober sense of uh, state of mind where suddenly I, I snap back to this moment where I'm in my ceremony again and the answer to the question that was asked in this other state of being is suddenly provided two years later in a in a completely unrelated circumstance. And that's another way that ayahuasca works too on plant medicines in general is sort of beyond time, outside of time, transcending time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was reminded uh, kind of talking about experiences. Uh, there was a gentleman who came down and he was a psychotherapist and 
I think there were, there were seven ceremonies and, you know, each ceremony, it seemed like nothing was happening and he was getting frustrated. And this again can be a common archetype. And, and I think one of the things that's really focusing on is this idea of faith, of trust. Yeah. You know, a, a lot of times, a lot of people I work with, they would say this medicine is always giving us pruebas. It's always giving us tests. And, and part of that reciprocity is, can I overcome those tests? You know, seemingly the medicine isn't working. Most people, when that happens, they throw up their hands and they say, I want to go home. You know, I paid all this money. I don't want to keep sitting here. I'm getting bit by insects. Nothing's happening. All these other people are having, you know, they're talking to God and they're having revelations and I'm just sitting here and nothing's happening. You know, but so we worked with him and, and he found that faith, you know, reluctantly. He kept coming to ceremony. And it wasn't until the set, the, the, the final ceremony, uh, and I think he had like two doses and all of a sudden it hit him and, you know, he was out of it. He couldn't move. He was crawling in the floor. He ended up crawling to the bathroom. He was sitting in the bathroom for a long time. And finally I went out to him and, you know, I asked him how he was doing and he could barely speak, but he just looked at me and I said, Hey, let me, let me help you back to your mat. It's, you know, it's better to stay in the Maloka and the, the ceremonial space than being out here in the bathroom. So I, I, I took his, his hand, his arm, and, you know, I, I, I embraced him and, and, and took him back to his mat. And the next day, you know, he was still just kind of floored by the experience, but he couldn't really describe it. But the only thing he could say was he was just completely floored and shocked by the humanity that someone was there to help him. Mm-hmm. And for him, that was everything, you know, and, and I think, you know, some, to some degree, that was his work. He was a psychotherapist. I think he was doubting his path. He was uncertain of, of certain things in his life. And I think that experience of just experiencing, as he described, the sheer humanity of helping someone was just unbelievably profound for him. And, and, you know, I think that's something then that he takes back and he is that person now. He's the person who now has the ability to share that humanity with all of the people he's working with in a much different way than this is just a client who I'm paying and I was trained to, you know, say these certain things and do this and hopefully they get better. You know, I would imagine now the quality of his work is just operating at a far different level. So, you know, as you were saying, uh, sometimes in ceremonies, uh, revelations can come, understandings can come. We can, you know, maybe understand the way we've been acting, get to the root of that, forgive someone, forgive ourselves. And then sometimes the ceremonies just happen. We experience things and there may not be a resolution. The experience may just be super overwhelming or just really chaotic and we're not able to bring any sense of order to it. And that's okay. You know, as you said, maybe down the line, months later, years later, something clicks and we, we again understand it. And we're like, oh, that's that's what that meant or that's, that's what that happened. And then sometimes we're just never going to know. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and that's okay. But the proof is in the pudding. If we're changed, 
then whatever was happening was happening. You know, the, the rearranging of the cells or the molecules or the, the neuropathways, sometimes that's just expressed in a way that's incomprehensible. Uh, it could be shapes or patterns or images or all sorts of things. And it, the human mind is never really going to be able to comprehend it. But in the end, it did something. And, and we kind of have this felt sense after that I'm different. Something has changed. I think if we can just be grateful and not have to have the desire to know and understand everything, then we can just really appreciate the experience for, for what it is. And you really encapsulate that with your story about the psychotherapist, because I think when ayahuasca gets spoken about, when all plant medicines or psychedelics or entheogens, whichever term you prefer, get spoken about, it's always the big uh, cosmic kind of experiences that I guess you would say grab the headlines. But the idea that a man could, after seven ceremonies, and in, halfway through his seventh ceremony, 11 days into a workshop, be sitting in the bathroom and that you come out to him and that you offer him a hand and that that is the profound experience, something so, for lack of a better word, mundane, something so simple that there could be absolute glory for this man and something as simple as, hey, how are you doing? Let me help you back to your mat. You know, you obviously weren't going, you know, out there in some sort of sense of spiritual fire, you know, but you created this moment for him to have this experience of meaning. And that was as powerful for this man as perhaps someone else's cosmic vision. But that beauty can be found in such a simple human gesture like that. That is the magic of, of plant medicines. That is the, the magic of the medicine and healing path is discovering the profound beauty in the simple and that's all it needs to be for this man. And that can be his story. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone else's, but that it manifests in that way too, I think is really important to say that it's not all of the big cosmic psychedelic, you know, kind of ideas that it's as simple as this other human being has shown me care when I'm used to being the guy who's caring for others, that he could need that help and that he could receive that help and open himself to that help. And then experience really what it is to be cared for. And then he can radiate that back to another person or the other people, his patients, and perhaps also the people in his life as well. That's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, if, you know, the, 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 the really good healers or, or curanderos who I work with, if it, it's often funny because if people come and they ask him like, you know, like, what is, what is ayahuasca or what is tobacco? Or what are these plants? What are they trying to do? And they're, they're kind of expecting often this response of like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's, it's working in this amazing realm and it's, it's going to give you enlightenment and all of these things. And it's the, the answer is usually just very simple. Like it's trying to make us happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's trying to make us, you know, the, like uh, one of my favorite quotanderos uh, is a woman named Leela. She says, this medicine is trying to make you happy and laugh like we laugh because <laughs> mm -hmm. she's always laughing, you know, she's uh, and it's something that I think really strikes a lot of people when they when they come down is they'll they're going about their lives and the the, the healers are, are usually in one house together. And most of the day they're just they're laughing. They're in their hammock. They're talking. They're laughing. And it really strikes people. You know, they, they're like these people are happy <laughs> and it's like this foreign concept for a lot of people that 
like why why they're laughing all day like and i think so many of us were were taught to think you know life is is so complex and there's all these problems in the world and you know i think more and more we see it in the political situation like you know it's my duty to be the 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 advocate the person who's you know pointing out all of these things that are wrong in the world and you know i'm the good guy and everyone else is the bad guy and i know the answers and anyone who doesn't agree with me is evil and but it's just you know it's not to say that there aren't things that need to be changed and that there 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 aren't things in the world that are not well but if that's where all of our focus is where's the joy where's the happiness and you know it's a very different energy of me criticizing the world and pointing out everything that's wrong and approaching it from that place of of fighting and criticizing and, and making the other people out to be wrong as opposed to moving towards the world that i actually want to see created and what are my actions? What am, what am I doing to actually create that world? What kind of energy am I putting out into the world? Mm-hmm. Am I a happy person? Am I, am I contributing to the world? Am I doing the very things I'm, I'm, you know, criticizing other people? Am I being the change that I want to see? And very often the answer is no, mm-hmm. it's unequivocally no. And again, that's, I think, really hard for a lot of people to hear. But I think, you know, again, one of the other really important things that this medicine does, uh, it's one of the really interesting practices they do in the aboga ritual, is you hold up a mirror to your face Mm -hmm. and you look in the mirror. And it's such a simple practice, but it's incredibly powerful. And, it, you know, it, it's one of these kind of spiritually woo-woo things that, that I often don't like, but this idea that, you know, that the things in, in other people which we don't like are unresolved things in ourselves. But from having done this work now for, for many years, I see that that's the case, not 50% of the time, not 70% of the time, not 90% of the time. That is the case 100% of the time. (laughs) And that's one of the really powerful things. If one is really willing to use these medicines to go into ourselves, is we see that all of the things we're judging other people for, all of the things that we're criticizing in the world are things that not only do we do ourselves, but potentially we're doing even worse than the people we're criticizing. And it's, uh, you know, it, it's one of these fundamental principles that you see in, in all religions, the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated yourself. The, the parable of Jesus, where he says, it's easy to judge the splinter in your brother's eye, but not to see the log in your own eye. Mm-hmm. And that's very powerful because it's not, it's easy to see the splinter in my brother's eye, but not the splinter in my own eye. (laughs) It's that I can see the small thing in my brother's eye, but I can't see this huge thing that's in my own eye. And I think one of the really powerful things that these plants do is this idea of gnosis, this idea of wisdom from a Buddhist point of view. It's, it's this idea of seeing things from the other side. Mm 
And if I can really see things from the other side, if I can really put myself in someone else's shoes, I can't criticize them. The only thing that, that arises is understanding, mm-hmm. compassion, a sense of seeing that all of these things in this other person, I also have in myself. And if I can resolve these things in myself, then I free myself of those things and I begin to create a world where those things don't exist because they don't exist in me. Mm-hmm. And then every person I come into contact with, I don't pass those things on. And that's this idea of even like intergenerational trauma or kind of stopping the seeds of these patterns is I can't stop them in my father or my mother or my grandparents. I can't change someone else. I can't change my brother. I can't change my friend, but I can change myself. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, we think we have this idea, well, what does that matter? What does one person matter? Well, one person matters a lot. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Jesus mattered, the Buddha mattered, Gandhi mattered, Martin Luther King mattered. These people were one person, and yet that ripple effect they had because their principle was so strong, that faith they had was so strong, that it affected not only people around them, but even people today. I mean, we still talk about them. They're still alive because they they did the work on themselves. You know, and, and I think all of those people who we we really respect in that way, they also came at it from a place of not criticizing other people, not demonizing other people. It's not that they didn't point out that things were wrong. Of course, you know, there are things in this world that are not fair, that are not just. Let's point those out. But how do we go about changing those in a way that's that's bringing the energy that we want to see and not bringing the same energy that we don't like you know bringing that that criticizing of someone else where that's the very thing we don't like in them mm-hmm. <laughs> you know not hating someone when the very thing we don't like about them is we think they're a hateful person yeah, without getting too much into it, that, that that's that's uh, I think that's a really important aspect of this plant medicine, and which also makes it very challenging, because again, it's much easier to point the finger outside of ourselves, and we build a whole identity around that. Mm-hmm. You know, that mm-hmm. becomes our persona. I am this person. I am. I am the victim, or I'm the person who's had trauma, or I'm. I'm the just person, and the other person is the unjust person. I'm the person who knows, and the other person is less than me. Even things that we may say are are good in a way. Uh, I think Jay Krishnamurti said it really good. You know, he said even. Even something like identifying as a particular religion, in its essence, there's an act of violence in that. Mm. Because if I say I'm a Christian, inevitably, I'm making the other person out to be someone other than me. And I create a split, I create a break, I create a separateness. One of the archetypes of, I think, what these plants are pointing towards, or again, all of these spiritual paths, like yoga, Yoga means union, uni, you know, the same thing, the joining together of these two polarities. It's this sense of merging together, of joining. And as long as I'm holding on to 
what we may call negative emotions, anger, jealousy, resentment towards anything outside of myself, I'm creating a separation. There's a me now that's separate from that other person. Even even these things like thinking that I'm right or I'm 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 superior, it inevitably makes the other person inferior. It inevitably makes the other person wrong. And that kind of energy is only going to contribute to more of that same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, so one of the hardest things with this work is going in and again, seeing all of the areas where I'm out of imbalance, where I'm doing these things that I'm holding on and blaming the other. I saw this really, really good. It was a very short documentary about these guys who went to Gabon and that, that's where um, Iboga is traditionally worked with. And they, the community came together and Iboga is a very elaborate ritual. There's music, there's dance, there's preparation. I mean, it's, it's like a two week process. Yeah. And they did this for one woman the entire village stopped what they're doing and they did this initiation for one woman. And the reason they did it for her is because she was jealous. <laughs> Something oh, so simple. She was jealous. She had jealousy. She was je- that was her issue just, just in general. Yeah, that was her, yeah, I don't know if it was of a particular person or, you know, a man or something. But for them, that jealousy was a sickness, an illness that had the ability to not only destroy her, but destroy the entire community. Mm-hmm. So everyone came together and did this amazing elaborate ritual to cure her of her illness of jealousy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it wasn't some crazy, you know, illness or some, you know, again, like you're saying, often we like to to kind of mystify this work as some crazy elaborate thing for them it was something very simple her jealousy was an illness and if it wasn't cured it would destroy her and it would destroy the village so this entire elaborate iboga ritual was was prepared to address the root cause of her illness which was jealousy something very simple Mm -hmm. you know and how many of us can say we don't have these things you know do we have jealousy do we have anger do we have envy do we have lust do we do we covet things you know again these these really simple things that the seven deadly sins you know we kind of we kind of understand that those aren't aren't simple but in our day-to-day lives do we have these things and if we do that very well could be the root of our illness and and what these plants are trying to do is to, again to try and clean and clear these things so that we can come back into a state of harmony Nataka <laughs> 
Hi, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that little musical break. That's part of an Ikaro from Maestro Sui, one of the curanderos of my Temple of the Way of Light workshop in 2016. Try to imagine hearing that man sing during seven nights of ceremony, along with four other maestros, including Maestro Lila, whose song you'll hear in a moment. But now that I have your attention, I'd like to reiterate my gratitude to all of you for your kind comments on this podcast. As you can tell, I'm having a lot of fun. And if you're enjoying one thing you can do to help this podcast reach more men, is leave a starred rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you're listening on Spotify, you can head over to the Apple Podcasts app and click the five-star button. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media. On Instagram, I'm at Men. that's R-E-N-O-F-M-E-N, like Renaissance of Men, but shorter. And on Twitter, I'm at Will underscore Ren of Men. Next week's guest will be the psychotherapist, Dr. Sean T. Smith, a man I'm very much looking forward to speaking with, so I hope you'll tune in. But in the meantime, here's a bit of an Ikaro from Maestra Lila, and you can find a link in the show notes to find this entire album of Ikaros on Bandcamp. No 
You mentioned the term identity, which I see ties into all of this. And I think a lot of a lot of the challenges that people face is identity is something that we need to have, but it can be a very tricky thing to begin to uh, put labels at the end of the phrase I am. So I am is a is a demonstrable fact, at least to me. And as soon as I begin to put something after the phrase, I am this, I am that that's when it starts to get very tricky. Now, to some extent, I think the mind does need to have some sense of I am, I am a man, I, I am uh, I am American, and all these things are fine. But when it starts to kind of, I guess, bleed past the sense of this is an external thing that I'm wearing to f- become this sort of internalized thing, that's where the separation begins to occur. And we were talking about people's uh, victim identity or people's identity as someone who has experienced trauma or someone's political identity. You know, to some extent, it's difficult not to have these these ideas of who we are. But then we lose sight of the fact that they are just ultimately ideas about who we are. And one of the great values of plant medicines is you are not uh, someone who is a thing anymore. You just are. And you get to separate your sense of self and your your being in the, in the capital B way, the philosophical capital B way, from the things that have 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 happened. There is a sense of of beingness that exists in the moment that has its own embodied experience, and then there's everything outside that has happened in the past. And we're getting to the point where language begins to be strained a little bit. But you know, you can go with me here. I know that you know what I'm talking about. And all these things begin to get a bit of separation from the simple nature of being in a body. And we can separate ourselves from the things that have happened to us or separate ourselves from the things that we think or separate ourselves from the things that we've done and just simply be. And that creates such a greater sense of ease and peace and space for other people to come in and to experience compassion and empathy and understanding of them as beings that have also had their own sets of stories and traumas and ideas placed upon them, sometimes violently, but we can separate those and experience our sense of being. And then through doing that, see other people's sense of being and begin to understand how alike we are underneath our differences. And that's so vital to happen now. And I am certainly familiar, as as I know you are, with people who have taken on their political identities as a form of crusading, even people that, uh, you know, we we would agree are probably pursuing some form of spiritual path. It's like, whoa, at some point you've lost the plot. You know, I thought we were about to build, we were trying to build a better world and separate identity from being. And it seems like identity has a greater hold on you now. And I don't know what happened there. And it's so it's so tragic to see that, that we were all working towards a greater sense of being. And some people have lost that in the way that you describe the the Gabonese, I think is that the is that the correct term? The villagers, mm-hmm. they have a greater sense of their collective being. And from this woman, it would be very easy for someone in that environment to react to this woman's jealousy and for it to fracture the whole community. But because they were able to separate themselves from the experience that they were having and look within this woman and separate her from the experience she was having, they were able to create this healing that the community needed. And wow, if we don't need more of that in our society right now. Yeah. And as you said, I mean, there's a certain point where language breaks down and, um, and you know the, these things—they are—they're they're very 
paradoxical in a way, but uh, I think the 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 Tao the, the Tao Te Ching speaks of it really beautifully when where, where they say you know right in the beginning, <laughs> the the Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. That's right. Which is already setting it up very well. You know, once we begin to put it into words, we've already lost what we're talking about. Um, but then they 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 say or he says, uh, uh, you know the. In the beginning, there was the Tao, and the Tao gave birth to the one. The one gave birth to the two. The two gave birth to the three, and the three gave birth to the 10,000 things, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a, an esoteric term for all, for infinity. And I think that's really powerful. And, and, and I think in a way that expresses a, a bit of the paradox that we're in as human beings, that uh sometimes you 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 hear it in vedic philosophy that you know in the beginning there was brahman the, the absolute uh but in order to experience life again there has to be a duality there has to be a polarity uh day categorically does not exist without night no thing exists without its opposite a man does not exist without a woman a woman doesn't exist without man we live in a world of polarity. That's what makes the universe made manifest. And so that's a beautiful thing. Without duality, there is no life. But with that, there's duality, <laughs> which right. means for happiness, there's also sadness. For beauty, there's also ugliness. These things don't exist. They need their opposite to, to be in existence. And it, so it's often spoken of uh, you know, one of the ways it's described is is the world of form and the formless void. And that essentially we all come from the formless void, much much like waves in the ocean. You know, each of us is a unique wave, a unique manifestation, but we're all part of this ocean. And so, you know, as you were saying, identity, it's it's essential. It, it's a it's it's what allows us to to experience this world in, in all of the beauty and all of the ugliness, it, it allows us to experience there's me and there's something else. And that allows me to experience. It allows me to actually exist. There's an I that's separate from you or this table or this microphone. And that's an amazing thing because that allows experience, that allows life to be made manifest. And so in the world of form, I'm a man, that's a reality. I come from the US, that's just a reality. (laughs) You know, none of these things are inherently good or bad, they just are. You know, we're all born into a unique body, a unique time, a unique place. And and so I think a lot of our suffering comes from, as a really beautiful woman says, uh, her name is Byron Katie. She says, when you fight reality, you lose, but only 100% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And that's reality. You know, my body is male. If I fight that, I lose because that's the reality. It's neither good nor bad. It's just in this time and place, that's what I've been born into. Um, and so much, you know, as you were saying, our identity, it's not the the identity itself. It's not the thing itself it is neither good nor bad. It's that if we don't accept it or we, we take that and then we add on to it, 
I'm a man, therefore I'm better, or I'm a man, therefore I'm not as good, or I'm this skin color, therefore I'm better, or I'm this skin color, therefore I'm not as good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm this height, which means I'm better than someone else, or I'm this height, which means I'm not as good as someone else. Mm-hmm. None of that is true. That's where the mind comes in. That's where the... Uh, you know, sometimes they, they they call it like the monkey mind or in Shipibo, I believe they call it Sukha Shinaya and Shina is mind. Shinaya is like to be with the mind and Sukhas is kind of like this agitated state. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of the Shipibo would say that these foreigners who come down, they have this like agitated state of mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not centered. Their mind is all over the place. And from what I take of that is, again, it's a very kind of Buddhist way of seeing things, is that the mind is never centered. It's, it hasn't found the middle way. It's either in the past or the future. It's labeling this as good or it's labeling this as bad. I don't have enough of this. I have too much of this. And this is the world of the mind. And, and you know, I think this is what this work is, is trying to help to clean and to clear. Mm-hmm. So in this world of form, there is reality. And and that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, we can either look at it as beautiful or we can look at it as horrible. But if we look at it as horrible, then that's how we see the world. Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, the idea is if we come from the formless void, then yes, there's something that we all have in common that's beyond form. You know, we're all a unique manifestation in the world of form. We're all different. We're all unique. We're all special in that way. And yet, we're all coming from the common source, which is beyond form. And and both are essential. You know, again, even those two, duality and non-duality, don't exist without each other. (laughs) That's right. They need each other. Yeah. There's a bunch of different ideas that are dancing around here. There's being, there's identity, and then there's the meaning or the value that we assign to it. And then along with that, there's the one, which is being. Then there's the two, which is identity as being separate. And then there's the three, which is the dance of dialogue that happens between the two different partners in, in, the, in the dance of identity. And then the meaning is established in that relative face. And that's really, that's really profound. And I think our culture, Western culture in particular, is very duality focused. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because being duality focused has enabled this incredible science and technology that has liberated much of humanity uh, from many different forms of suffering, many different forms of material suffering. Of course, it's, it's, it's created its own suffering, which is a separate conversation. But nonetheless, technology has enabled a lot of very wonderful things. But it's so limited in its capacity. If it doesn't also, uh, duality is, if it doesn't also acknowledge that there is a singularity, that there is a unity between all things and all beings, and that also in duality, there needs to be dialogue. And we seem very fixated on this notion of I, thou, you, me, red, blue, left, right, et cetera. And without recognizing that there's a unity and without, without also recognizing that there's a dialogue happen between, between these two. And uh, that's the tunnel vision that I think Western civilization has kind of developed um, out of what started out as very good ideas, scientific, uh, scientific materialism. I don't think it was fundamentally bad to begin with, but any idea taken too far, you know, it can become quite toxic and even destructive as we're seeing. And so this, this useful idea, this useful cognitive tool needs to have additional tools with it in order 
order to create meaning and a fulfilling experience for individuals. And I think that's what's happening when people come down to the temple, though they would probably not articulate that in that way. They're looking for more, at least as they're coming from the United States or potentially Europe as well. And, and uh, th that was my experience. I haven't met anyone from, from um, on my workshop. There wasn't anyone from India there, but perhaps they're experiencing similar cultural uh, cultural issues there. But they're looking for more than the their cognitive, uh, than, the, than their inherited worldview has given them the tools to appreciate. And they come to the medicine looking for that. They come to this other culture, this ancient culture with these practices, these undiluted practices from the deep past to help inform the present in this very powerful way so they can find meaning in their lives, which our civilization doesn't seem to be too good at providing right now. Yeah. And, 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 and trying to find that balance is, is so important, you know, and, and like you were saying, we, we can focus on duality and, and, and there's a beauty behind that, but then there's a downside to that. And, but then we can also get in the other direction, you know, focusing on the 10,000 things, which there's a beauty in that, but then maybe forgetting the duality and, uh, you know, like, for example, like a lot of, uh, you know, gender issues seem to be coming up these days. And but if we look at it from that angle, again, duality is inherent to life, polarity and everything. There is a polarity and that's just reality. That's literally what creates reality is the polarity. So in that way, there is man and woman. That's how life is created. You know, the, the man has the, the, the semen and, and the woman has the, the seed, the egg. And when those two things are combined, life is created. Now, as the, the Tao was saying, from duality comes three, from three into the, the, the 10,000, the infinite things. So from that polarity of man and woman, black and white, up and down, then we can have infinite shades of gray. You know, and in that spectrum, there there is infinite possibility. But it, again, it's a balance. How do we balance the infinite possibility, which there is, but again, balance that with the inherent duality that makes life possible? And neither one nor the other is true in an ultimate sense or, or more true than the other. They're equally as true. There's the duality and there's infinity. And yet then at the root of all that is this union, is this sense that even the 10,000 things, even infinity at its root, at its source, it's all coming from the same place. It's all a manifestation of the Tao. Yeah. And so you know, it's, it's kind of tricky. Like when we, when we look at our bodies, for example, like, again, I'm a man, I'm one of those spectrums of the polarity, but then within that there's our country, there's our society, there's our thoughts, there's our likes, our dislikes, our preferences. This whole world is opened up from that. And, you know, I think so much of our suffering comes from not being able to hold those two things in balance, not being able to bridge together the infinite, the 10,000 things with the duality, and then realizing that all of that emerges from the same source. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where, you know, so much of our conflict comes from, mm -hmm. you know, is, is looking at things in a black and white way, which again, there is, <laughs> this right. is where the paradigm comes from, but within the duality, 
there's infinite shades of gray. You know, so much, you know, you look at it a political spectrum. You're a Democrat, therefore X, Y, and Z, or you're a Republican, therefore X, Y, and Z. Whereas no two people are the same. Every manifestation, there's an infinite shade of gray. And then potentially even more important is that even with the duality, both of those come from the exact same source. <laughs> yes. So, and, and, and that's where hopefully the, the compassion, the understanding can come from. And, you know, realizing that we are all unique, we are all special, and we all come from the same source. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we're, I think we're treading near some, some very, um, some very heated topics for a lot of people, which is fine, which I'm, I'm totally into. And I think what really exacerbates all this, although I do want to pivot back to ayahuasca and the medicine and also your experience with it and, 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 and your role at the temple and also your experience with other plants. But I think where this all gets very distorted in our modern world is that there's being and then there's identity and then there's meaning. And so many of these distinctions get so charged with meaning, particularly by the media. And by media, I don't necessarily mean once there, although this is a factor, one single uh, propagandistically influencing force, which I believe there is, and that's another conversation, but also individuals access to creating media and content themselves and what place they're creating that media and content from. And so we have these, and we have, we have, we have uh, being, and then we have identity and those things, that's reality as Byron Katie would say. And then that all gets so hypercharged with this meaning, uh, which we might call political meaning in a way, not necessarily the the mechanics of politics, but politics in a larger, in a larger sense, it gets charged with meaning and then everything gets so heated. And then when it gets charged with meaning, it gets charged with value and out of value comes conflict. And that's what I think is going on. It's not that these spectrum of gray, spectrums of gray, that the the duality and the 10,000 things necessarily exist. It's that they're being charged with meaning and conflict with each other that says one is better, one is better than the other. And I think that's where it gets really difficult because I don't think the average person can necessarily sort that out. And yet they're forced to deal with it every day, being told you are bad for being X or you are good for being Y. And uh, that's where confusion and chaos results that the individual just has to sort out for themselves on almost a daily basis, on their local level, on their school level, on the national level. And that's where the conflict comes from. And if we could turn down the volume and have an actual dialogue between identity and being without the hypercharged meaning coming at us from all corners, I think things would go much more productively, but it just doesn't seem like that's the direction we're headed, at least not at the moment, at least until the people reassert control over their, I suppose I would say information sources, but... um, well, that's, that's one of the great things you're, I think you're doing with a podcast like this is, you know, you mentioned someone like Joe Rogan. I mean, he's the most uh, watched, downloaded media source in the world now, which mm-hmm. is pretty amazing. I yeah. mean, that that was only possible in the last, you know, 10 or 15 years or so before there was kind of a, a monopoly on information. And I think we, many of us, we didn't even realize that until something like the internet came along. And you know, obviously there's, we could say the downside of that is now who knows what to believe, right? Because right. there's, there's, there's 10,000 information sources, but it, it opens us to those possibilities. And, and I think ultimately when we hear opposing points of view and the more access to that we have, the more we can actually filter what is real, 
rather than than simply getting our, our information from one source. And again, I think that's what's really powerful about plant medicine is this idea of gnosis. You know, it's ultimately, it doesn't matter what the Pope says or what the Buddha said or what Jesus said. It's this experiential sacrament that allows us to come to our own conclusions. And even this idea of Christ in early Christianity, they never spoke of Jesus Christ. They spoke of Christ, Christ consciousness, Paul or Saul. He had a revelation. He experienced Christ consciousness. Moses experienced a revelation. Buddha experienced a revelation. And in that, in that direct experience that they had, they achieved gnosis. They achieved some sort of knowledge that was embodied within them. It was so true that it didn't matter what anyone else said. It was experientially truth. Mm -hmm. Their faith was unshakable because what could shake that? <laughs> you know, essentially they, if you want to use this word, they had experienced revelation from God, from source. Mm -hmm. So in the world of humans, it didn't matter what your neighbor said or someone else said, this was an experiential truth that was unshakable. Now, obviously we have to be careful with that because, <laughs> you know, it's not that you can just take ayahuasca and you, you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always quite weary when, when people say something like, well, ayahuasca told me this. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Someone else ayahuasca told them the opposite. So, you know, <laughs> if one can really humble themselves and be open to that, I think that truth then becomes very, very powerful. And it's it becomes something that's that's in a way unshakable and, and something that really can help to guide people in their lives because this experience has has changed them. It's it's forever altered their perception of, of what's real. Mm -hmm. I think the power of ayahuasca, like any sort of Gnostic sort of experience like Vipassana, for example, or meditation, or any medicine or or certain forms of sound healing, is that it makes very clear that there is a spiritual dimension to reality, a dimension to reality that is pure spirit, that is separate, that is separate from the material, that influences the material, that the material influences in return. But there is a dimension of spirit that cannot be denied. And whether at the top or at the center, you know, you find a God or a deity or a source on that particular journey, which may or may not happen, potentially it can, it's undeniable, certainly from my experiences with ayahuasca and Vipassana both, that there is a spiritual dimension to reality. And witnessing that, you can't convince anybody of that. There's no amount of rational convincing where I'm going to lay out the charts and figures and the diagrams and make the logical arguments that demonstrate to you or anybody that there's a spiritual dimension to reality. You have to go in and you have to experience it for yourself. And once you do, no one can shake that knowing. You cannot, you like literally you, Jason, or anyone else listening, cannot shake my knowing of the spiritual dimension of reality because I have experienced it like I'm experiencing this desk in front of me. It's as real as that to me. And I can't give that to you uh, in, in the same, but you also can't take it from me or you also can't uh, convince me that it doesn't exist. And that's what's, that's one of the things that at the root of it, if we're talking about experience, like cosmic experiences of, of the divine, of God, of visions, of healing, of all of these things are very valid and very real aspects of, of, of plant medicine, of ayahuasca. But the experience of the reality of the world of spirit 
is fundamentally transformative to know that the things we do and think and say have resonance far beyond the material plane is also is also very powerful and that this other plane of reality uh influences this and we can draw from it and give to it and ask from it and give thanks for it and that transforms the experience of being just alone that that, that is what i one of the reasons i i celebrate ayahuasca so much because i meet many people who don't believe in god or don't believe in spirit or who are atheists or agnostics and i'm like look i understand your viewpoint but i really recommend that you do one of two things you either go on a 10-day going of a pasna retreat and and really commit yourself fully to the process and you know all the preparation and go through all the discipline and and, and do the retreat as it's intended for 10 days or go to an ayahuasca retreat and then talk to me you know and then you'll see you can find these things out for yourself you know, you don't, you don't, you don't need to rely on someone else's word. Go find out for yourself. And that is very powerful when I speak to people, when I speak to men in particular, like they have this deep hunger to know their, their lives have maybe they've, they've experienced discipline and growth and transformation. And they have this question, like, is there, is there a God? Is there a spirit world? And yes, you can, here are these roads to go find that. And you're never the same after walking, even if you just do it once, even one experience with ayahuasca or one deep session of meditation where you just dis disappear within is enough to transform your whole experience of, of knowing reality. Yeah. Yeah. And like I was saying, the, the more I do this work, I, I, I really think um, that this kind of work was at the basis of, of all religion, of, of all spirituality, which is essentially the basis of all humanity. What, what, what even makes us human? And that's why, you know, fortunately there are these cultures like in the Amazon that, that were somewhat remote and removed from outside influence that have kept those traditions alive or people really high up in the mountains, like in, in, you know, Tibet or even here in the Andes that weren't so much influenced by the outside world. But uh, again, I, I really think that those roots are, are at the beginning of everything. Uh, in the Vedas, which is the oldest philosophy or knowledge that's that's known to be passed on, they they speak of soma, which was a plant mixture that that people took to experience revelation. Uh, you know, even at the end of the Vedas, it's amazing because they say, you know, this is the oldest knowledge that <laughs> that we know of. And at the end, they say, or so this is what the ancient ones told us. <laughs> well, who were the ancient ones? Yeah. You know, you know, in Zoroastrianism, you have Halma and in Farsi, they, they don't pronounce the, the S, they pronounce the S like an H. So Soma, Homa, mm. the exact same thing. It was a sacrament. Wow. You know, you see it uh, again, like this book I mentioned, uh, he does a really good job of going into the origins of Christianity, which emerged from all of these Greek mystery schools, which we know of the Dionysian rites, the Aleutian rites, uh, you know, at, at Delphi and, you know, some of the, the greatest thinkers, Pythagoras and Plato and Marcus Aurelius, they all did this elaborate preparation. They went into this ritualistic setting. They, they took some sort of sacrament, a Eucharist. They died and they were reborn with an appreciation for life and knowledge. And it led to all of this teaching. Again, I mean, this is pretty controversial, but I would imagine Christianity had the same, the same roots. They had a Eucharist. They had a sacrament that 
allowed them to experience Christ consciousness in, in the same way that the Shipibo, their sacrament is ayahuasca and it's gnosis. You know, unfortunately, because of various reasons, but in, in a lot of Western society, after that amazing time, we entered the dark ages. <laughs> what were the dark ages? It was a persecution of all of this knowledge, the the, the murdering of probably millions of witches, which you, you still see that word here today used in a derogatory term towards people who work with plants as sacraments. In Spanish, they call them brujos or brujas, and they are the devil, they're witches. And, and, and the reason is because the sacrament they work with gives you a direct experience of what all of these religions are talking about. And you don't need the Pope, you don't need a preacher, you don't need someone to be the intermediary. You have direct access to that. You can experience Gnosis through these plants, these these kind of gifts that were that are here that exist. And you know what I also find really fascinating with that is, like I was mentioning in 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 the beginning, you know one of the things I had a resistance towards was kind of taking something from the outside you know, with this idea that that I should already have everything. But what's really fascinating about a lot of these plants or all of these plants is that, essentially one way you could look at it, is there a key? Mm -hmm. And so we already have inside of ourselves these keyholes, these receptors, and these things, you know, like ayahuasca, one of the, the main alkaloids in it is, is DMT or dimethyltryptamine. But what's fascinating is we produce DMT. Mm -hmm. The human body produces dimethyltryptamine. <laughs> So it's already something we're producing and most likely something that's already putting us in a very altered state of consciousness, namely dream state. You know, that, that's a state that we spend a third of our lives in, which is highly, highly altered. The, the, one of the things is, is we usually just don't remember it. We, we go to sleep, we're out, we're essentially dead for eight hours, nine hours, six hours, however long you sleep. But if if people begin to to maybe work on their dreams or remember their dreams, they see that that is a highly altered state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. I mean, crazy things are happening. Journeys are happening. Traveling is happening. Uh, my form changes, time changes, space changes. I mean, all sorts of things are happening. And essentially, that's what this plant work is doing is it's putting us into that dream state. But in a way, we have one foot in the dream space and one foot in this reality. And in that way, it's very profound because we're able to navigate that space. And what we take, we can bring back. But yeah, just, you know, again, it, it, it's something that, that, that I, I think some of the cultures we come from, and, and especially more and more, most of the cultures we come from, we've, we've lost these traditions, mm -hmm. but that essentially these traditions are at the root of all humanity. And, and I think that's why we're also seeing more and more a lot of these ailments that we don't necessarily have the answer for is because it's coming from this lack of connection to spirit. And, 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 you know, again, that word can maybe be triggering for some people, right. but this connection to something that's beyond our rational mind, something that again, has to be experienced, as you said, you know, no book is going to teach it to us, no lecture or internet series or, 
pontificating and arguing with people one way or the other is going to give us that answer. It's something that has to be in, even in Christian terms, it has to be seen, you know, the, 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 the realm of God has to be seen. We have to open our eyes to be able to see it. And these plants are essentially a sacrament that gives us that ability to do that. So, you know, as you're saying, a, a lot of your listeners are interested in, and I think for good reason, I think more and more where we as societies are realizing that this is something that's that's really lacking in our societies. And it's it's something that's that's keeping us from being whole human beings. It's it's keeping us from from finding these things that we're looking for. And uh, I think we can see the manifestation and things like depressions and anxieties and lack of purpose and a sense that something's not right. And, you know, all the way down to, to many chronic ailments and, and physical things we're dealing with. There's something that we're missing. And, and, you know, also through a lot of the research that's happening now with with these plants, you know, hopefully that will begin to to shed some light and, and, and kind of, again, make these things more accessible and, and not so demonized because it's, you know, it's pretty crazy. It's 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 pretty crazy that we live in a culture where if you want to take these or work with them, you're threatened with being locked behind a cage. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's literally insane, you know, that, that potentially the root of humanity, the root of who we are as not only physical beings, but spiritual beings, beings is, is punishable by <laughs> solitary confinement or maybe even death. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the sickness that we're we're, we're dealing with as as, as, a, as a society. Yeah, this idea that you can't just uh, grow something out of the ground that grows naturally and dry it and smoke it or dry it and and eat it or or brew it into a drink and drink it and that that's somehow illegal is it's insane. It's it's literally it's literally crazy. I think. I can understand how, you know, there's a societal argument where if people aren't properly trained in how to use these sacraments, that it can cause more harm than good. But at the same time, there's this crazy idea that's like, we're so disconnected from nature within our own bodies, within our our own ability to really profoundly experience the healing effects of nature, not simply by going into the forest or the desert or swimming in the ocean, though we are quite separate in large part from those, but allowing uh, nature to come into us and heal us from within in these very powerful ways. And you've mentioned plant dietas a a few times. And one of the things that was really uh, revelatory to me when I came into the temple was recognizing that, no, there's way more plants that can be consumed than just ayahuasca or mushrooms or San Pedro, that there's other plants that have other lessons to teach us. In fact, perhaps potentially even an infinite variety that might not have a psychoactive kind of effect in the way that we think of it but that the maestros and the maestras and the curanderos, they diet with plants as you have done to experience the healing properties of these other plants that perhaps don't have as much, that don't have DMT in them, but have no less powerful uh, a healing effect or a teaching effect in their own way. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about, about that, because this is an area that I don't know too much a lot, uh, too much about, but I know that you're very familiar with, particularly in your work with tobacco, which 
I was so happy to discover as a healing plant at the temple and the way that they uh, encouraged and, and permitted us to smoke cigarettes. Like obviously not, not, not Marlboros, but jungle tobacco cigarettes. Like, oh, wow, we get to, we get to journey and heal, you know, by night and then sit in the sun and, and smoke jungle tobacco by day. Like how fantastic is this? And that was my first time I'd ever discovered that tobacco was actually a healing plant. So, and I know that's something you have a lot of experience with. So I wonder if you could speak about that. Yeah. So the, the idea of, of a dieta, it's not to be confused. I mean, it literally translates as diets, mm. but it, it's not to be confused with like, a, you know, I'm becoming vegan or, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm giving up dairy or something. It's, uh, it's this idea of, of, again, kind of like this ritual or ceremony of, of going into a, a particular point in your life where you isolate and you fast and you're, you know, you're alone, uh, by fasting, the body becomes usually quite weak, but by the body becoming weak, it's often said that the spirit becomes very open or very alive. You know, if you've ever been really sick or maybe you've had the flu, obviously your body is, is struggling, but there's often kind of awareness or that the consciousness is very open and very retrospective, you know, very, very alive in a way. Mm. Yeah. As you were saying, I, I mean, there's many, many plants that can be dieted that can, and again, the, the reason one would diet a plant is one of two things, either to heal from the plant, because again, much like herbalism, they call it vegetalismo. There's plants to treat any ailment that we have, whether it's physical, mental, spiritual, even. Uh, and there's particular plants that are good for particular conditions. So if I have rheumatoid arthritis, there's a plant that can treat that. Uh, if I have trauma or, or fear, there's a plant that can help that. If I have heart disease, there's a plant that can help that. But the, to, to fully benefit from the plant, one also needs to follow a dieta. So ideally, one would go into isolation only eat certain foods to kind of really clean the body, to, to clean the mind, to really allow that plant to penetrate. And, and many curanderos would say without the dieta, the plant really isn't mm -hmm. gonna work. Mm -hmm. You know, the dieta is very important. Kind of similarly, like if you go to the pharmacy and you get prescription medication and they say, don't take this, this, and this. Kind of like that, but much more strict, where it really allows the body to be open, sensitive, the mind to be open and sensitive so this plant can really go in and really get to the root of what's happening. And then the other reason someone can diet is to learn from the plant. And these things are correlated. I mean, healing and learning are really two sides of the same coin. Usually through a process of healing ourselves, we begin to learn as well. And we begin to learn about ourselves and, and we, we, we learn with the plant and through the plant. Often a lot of those teachings come in the dream space, even because we are weak and isolated, kind of even during the day where we're in more or less of a dream space, kind of a, a long daydream space. So uh, these plants really have an ability to teach. Now, usually these plants, if it's for a, a learning diet, the plants would be also administered with what we would call one of these master plants like ayahuasca or mm. tobacco. And that essentially the idea is the ayahuasca or the tobacco is opening us, is kind of opening our vision or opening our consciousness so that kind of local language so that 
the spirit of the plant can connect with us so that we're able to learn the plant. And again, usually that learning comes through the the dream space or or the daydream space. And that's the process that that one would use to to heal themselves of certain ailments. And it's also the process that one learns to become a curandero, to to become a healer, is through doing a, a number of diets. And through that process, they learn how to work with plants. They they potentially learn songs or ikaros. Uh, maybe they learn how to work with their hands to heal. But it's it's really through that process of, of isolating, fasting, and, and working with plants that they begin to acquire those abilities. So that's that's the process of dieting. And yeah, you mentioned tobacco. <clears throat> I mean, tobacco, like many of these plants, uh, tobacco can have a bad reputation, mm-hmm. um, much like coca or cocaine. Here here in Peru, ayahuasca has a really bad reputation because also it was demonized. So uh, even today, sometimes if I mention ayahuasca to maybe a certain class of people in Lima or something, they wouldn't want to talk to me because I'm be like the devil or an evil person, a witch, essentially. So all of these plants have bad connotations. You know, most of that comes really from some form of discrimination. I mean, coca, for, for, for many people here in Peru, it's, it's, it's a teacher plant and it's a teacher plant of the highest order. It's, it's, it's one of the main medicines that people use to really open their mind, to, to connect with spirit, to heal, to bridge relationships, to heal relationships, to, to do many, many things. I think tobacco has a similar history. You know, unfortunately, a lot of these plants, like I was saying earlier, when you forget the story, then you lose the medicine. When, when, when you don't understand mm. what the medicine is, then eventually it can become poison. I mean, that's, there's a medical term for that called pasology, which is the science of dose. Or as Paracelsus said, the difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose. Mm-hmm. Any of these strong plants, it's like that. I mean, we, we were talking about these like uh, mystery schools. Socrates, the story goes, he took his own life by drinking hemlock. Mm. So most of us, if we think of hemlock, we think of it as a poison. It is a poison in a certain dose. And in another dose, it's a, considered a medicine of the highest order. It's, mm. a, it's a master plant, henbane, mandrake, you know, toe, even a lot of these plants we find in, in Europe or the U.S., they're extremely powerful medicine. And at a certain dose, they're toxic, they're poisonous. And tobacco is the same thing. It's a very strong medicine. Um, of all the plants in the Americas, it was singularly the most commonly used medicine plant, more than ayahuasca, more than wachuma, more than coca. It was used all the way from the southern tips of South America, all the way up to a lot of the Inuit of Canada. I mean, even where they couldn't really grow many crops, they had trading networks for one plant, and that plant was tobacco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. I doubt they were putting all of this effort and trading into some plant that, you know, was just this nice thing that they, you know, took some comfort in smoking. Uh, they, they used it as medicine. And so here in South America, much like you have ayahuasqueros, people who work with ayahuasca or wachumeros, people who work with wachuma, you also have tabaqueros, people who work with tobacco. 
smoking was probably the least commonly used way. There, there were people who smoked it, but it, that really wasn't the common way of working with it. The leaves could be boiled down to a paste, which could be licked. It was often mixed with things like coca. Uh, it's a very sacred medicine for people in, in the mountains and certain parts of the jungle. Often a powder was made, which has different local names, but it's kind of generically known as, as rape or hape, and that was blown through the nostrils, usually through a really long tube. And with higher doses, it creates a very strong mariación. <clears throat> and then the, the the most powerful way is, is is drinking it, ingesting it, like with most plants. That's the 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 the, the most powerful way of working with it. And in, in some languages, like in Ashaninka, the word for curandero is actually the same word as the word for tobacco. So a curandero is one who works with tobacco. And the stronger the curandero, kind of the the, the more tobacco they're able to ingest. And it, kind of in an archetypical sense, uh, you know, as I was mentioning, a lot of times the, the curandero will drink ayahuasca to open their vision. It's what allows them to see and it's what allows them to diagnose. But the other plants they diet is kind of where their power comes from. And tobacco is is, is often considered one of, if not the most powerful plant one can diet to acquire that power of being able to heal. Um, but again, there's many plants that, that one can diet and that, that essentially through the dieting of these plants, and again, this is where language may be a little tricky for some people, but they would say that they've now, they have a relationship with the spirit of that plant. Mm -hmm. And so when they're singing or when they're, they're working as a healer and they take ayahuasca, it opens their vision. And, and in essence, it allows these plants that they've dieted to come through them and to, to aid the person they're working with. So uh, some curanderos may diet many plants. Some may only diet a few plants, but diet those plants many times and develop a really strong relationship with those. But essentially, yeah, as you were saying, there are these master plants or teacher plants, which like ayahuasca, tobacco, wachuma, which have the ability to heal on all levels, then for specific illnesses or to learn, there's plants that one would do a dieta in order to, to gain the benefit of those plants. That actually helps me understand. Oh, when I learned all this, it helped me understand some of the things I experienced during my workshop where I would have moments where I felt that I was very clearly communing with the spirit of ayahuasca, who I never actually saw as a woman. I kept looking for some sign that it was a woman because that's conventionally how ayahuasca is referred to. I never actually saw anything that convinced me, but it was definitely a feeling of a, of a presence that was the primary source of the work that I was doing. And then I had several visions of other spirits doing various forms of energetic work on my body. And when I found out later that the uh, that the maestros and the maestros had dieted with particular plants and through their ikaros or songs, they were channeling the, the plant spirits, the, the words and the intention, the vibration, the sound vibration through their bodies and their language was what was creating this additional healing effect and also invoking these other spirits. That all made sense when I understood that, yes, there's the, there's the master plant. And then there's these other, other plants that come in that serve their roles that are more like spe perhaps specialized tools is probably too clinical a way of looking at it. But that was the way that I kind of understood it at the time, that it wasn't simply working with ayahuasca, but perhaps even potentially a team of different plants that were addressing different needs of my energetic body and the, the needs of the energetic bodies of the people around me. Yeah. And again, many, many people have very direct experiences like that. 
uh, it, it can be very anthropomorphic where you see these entities. It can be very ethereal or just this sense of presence. Uh, and, and then some people aren't going to experience that at all. Right. It's you know, a completely different experience. But yes, uh, from the healer's point of view, that's that's the reason they're dieting all these plants is, is they would say just that. It's like these helper spirits that that come and, and actually are doing the work. Even if you listen to, to like the Ikaros, the songs that the Shpibos are singing, they're very simple. And, and it's it's really just asking for the help of these plants, you know, directing them where to go, saying what they see, naming what they see, uh, asking the plant to clean that, filling it with what they they see should be filled with, joy, love, light, calling on, on the great spirit, calling on these plants. And, you know, sometimes they sound very intricate but at their root it's it's very simple songs and it's it's they would say it's it's these plants that are actually doing the work they're they're calling on these plants to to heal mm -hmm. yeah they're channels i actually i actually donated to the temple it was would have been earlier this year and i got that uh cd I forget the title of it. Maybe it was called Anyawan Bewa or something similar to that. And I remember listening to particularly, I think Maestro Sui has a track on there. And Maestro Sui was uh, one of the more powerful for me. Maestro Sui and Ramalo in particular were very powerful for me when I was at the temple. And listening to Maestro Sui again took me immediately back into the moment of being in the Maloka. It was very, very visceral, very gripping experience to, to have felt that move in me. Again, and, and as I put together this podcast, I'll include some samples of those so people can hear sort of what we're talking about and hopefully be transported into the moment in their own way. Yeah, they're 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 they're, they're very beautiful, and yeah, for again, it may seem kind of strange that that these healers are singing to people to cure them. That <laughs> it's kind of a foreign concept for a lot of people. Um, but yeah, again, it's one of these things where. Uh, until you really experience it, it's it's maybe hard to fully grasp that. But it's it's a very powerful medicine, and you know. But, but even these things, it's so many of us. We we even listen to music to alter us. You know, we we may be feeling depressed, and we we put on certain music to uplift us. Or, you know, th these really simple things have very powerful abilities. Uh, yeah, there, there's a famous quote by a medicine person, maybe it's a North Native American medicine person, and someone is asking them, you know, like, I'm sick, how do I, how do I heal myself? What's wrong? And their answer is something like, when's the last time you sang? When's the last time you danced? When's the last time you were out in the rain? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, have you, have you bathed? Are you eating well? Are you getting sunshine? Yeah, often these these very simple things we take for granted, but they're they're very powerful medicine. But again, with the ikaro, it is there's something very scientific about it. Even the way they sing it, the words, the the intention, and even the sounds are very precise. And often, the changes in pitches take people to very different experiences. So it's mm -hmm. it's also a, a pretty amazing art form. Mm -hmm. And I know we're, we're, we're getting to the end of the time when you're available, uh, but I, I also want to talk about your role at the temple and what you have gotten personally to the extent you're willing to talk about it, what you've gotten personally out of these many experiences you've had uh, at the temple and beyond. Yeah, I think uh, as I was mentioning earlier, it's for me there was always just this really deep curiosity, this deep longing 
for something that I knew existed, but I, I, I hadn't experienced before. And, and, and these plants have been really revelational in that way of, of opening me to that, of, of, of experiencing things that I never could have imagined. And then also, as we were talking about, with all of these experiences, I, I see more and more that it's really just in, in one way, it's preparing us for life to, to really be able to live life, to, to, to be happy, to, to have a sense of, of wisdom and balance in life. Uh, and then I think also in a way preparing us for death, you know, the, the ultimate journey that we, we all are going on, whether we, <laughs> whether we want to or not, or whether we feel prepared or not. And then also the, the more I do this work, the, the more I find myself in a role of, 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 of being a guide or, or being a doctor in some sense. And, 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 and helping other people in their own journeys, which isn't necessarily something I, I saw myself doing or I wanted to do, but uh, it, it's just kind of become a natural progression of the more I do this, the perhaps the better prepared I am to, to aid in people doing the, the, the experience that I've gone through. And, you know, I think a lot of these processes are really initiatory experiences that one emerges from that one is is kind of able to hold someone's hand or, or be a guide for them and to speak from a place of experience of yes like I, I know where you are I know what you're going through and just you know hold the course like it's going to be okay and and then you know to to maybe a more subtle degree in that doctor sense, being able to to navigate that space with or for them, maybe increasing the effect, decreasing the effect, but really just just creating that space that that allows these plants, however we want to look at them, spirit, God, intelligence, consciousness, which ultimately is has a far greater knowing than I or anyone will ever know, but really to have faith in that and, and to allow those plants to be a gateway to really heal the person and to, to teach the people uh, and, and, and just to be a, a vehicle that, that, you know, through, through now years of working with many people, I slowly am able to, to, to be able to hold that space in a way uh, the, that hopefully allows people to, to go deep into that process and, and to have their own experience and, and, and to allow these plants to, to work their magic in a way to, to teach. And because I, I think it's something we, we, we all have access to and, and almost in a way it's, it's, it's like a birthright of us. I mean, kind of from an American point of view, you know, it's, it's not the government who gives us our freedoms. Mm -hmm. <laughs> our freedoms are birthright, uh, our God-given right to life, liberty, and our pursuit of happiness. Uh, it's not for anyone to give us or to hold back from us. It's, it, it's our birthright. It's mm -hmm. We were born into this world to experience certain things. And you know, as you were saying, I, I think these plants are just a, a tremendously powerful way to, to really 
experience all that can be experienced in this world, which uh, we don't necessarily have the ability to do in our in our day to day lives. And and that's not a bad thing. You know, like, for example, one of the qualities of ayahuasca is usually it incapacitates someone. (laughs) You're 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 not going to drive a car under the effects of ayahuasca. You're not going to cook yourself dinner. And so that's a really important thing. We can't be in that ayahuasca space all the time because we we wouldn't be able to survive. Uh, but there's a time and a place, a, a ritual, a ceremony, which I think is very important. And you know, you were mentioning this idea that a lot of your audience is for men, and and I think that's also something that that we're we're very much missing in some of the societies we come from is this initiatory experience, mm-hmm. this this rite of passage, this like this sense of of going into the darkness and emerging from that and finding our strength. And when we find that strength, then then we can also be a light for other people. We can help other people to to go into that process and to emerge as a better person. Much like martial arts, you know, I think a lot of people, less and less, but I, I think a lot of people still have similar beliefs about martial arts, you know, that it's about violence or control, or if you do martial arts, you're going to be more aggressive. And it's the exact opposite. The deeper one goes into martial arts, the more peaceful one becomes, the 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 the, the stronger principled one becomes, the more one is a vehicle for actually for peace, for harmony. And and I, I think these plants have a tremendous ability to to help us and 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 really to to change us. Um, so that's kind of the the role I find myself in. My my friend Claude puts it really way. He he calls himself a bridge keeper, and mm. and I think more and more that's kind of a role I I I find myself in. Much like uh, I think how like the Greeks looked at a lot of knowledge that that or even like the the basis of our liberal arts education is really bridging all of these things together because. I'm not Shipibo and I, I, I don't want to be a Shipibo. Like I, I, I have a tremendous respect for the culture and I, I've gained a tremendous amount of it. Um, you know, and, and how do I take that and, and things from my culture and things I've learned from other cultures and, and, and really bridge that to, to create something new. And there's, there's another guy who I work with. I mentioned uh, this guy in the Colombian Amazon and, he talks about that this is the time of the Diro Amasa, and it's this new kind of breed of people who are trying to build a new maloka. And a maloka is this, the traditional ceremonial space. It's also the space that people live in. Mm-hmm. And the idea isn't that one culture has all of the answers. The idea is that these these new people are creating a new maloka and bringing in the medicines from all four directions, bringing in the medicine from the north, the south, the east, the west, that all of our cultures have medicine. And, and how do we take that medicine and how do we bridge it together to create a new maloka that serves all of humanity? And where and how that path leads, I still don't know, but uh, I, I sense it's something around that. Absolutely. That was one of the best, the biggest learnings from my travels, because when you and I met about four and a half years ago, when I came through the temple, I had just started a four-year journey around the world. And in that time, I visited, you know, a dozen or more countries after that, spending a lot of time in each one. And it became really apparent to me that all these different countries of the world need to exist in dialogue with each other. 
they have so much to say to each other and the cultures have so much to say and some cultures are better at some things than others uh, and and that's okay in the same way that any two individuals two individuals are good at some things versus the other we're talking about identity and being we are one human family one human being i guess you would say and at the same time we are still different and we need to learn to, to speak to each other and that and to hear that when i was there it was primarily americans uh, on my workshop and maybe there was one guy there from germany or russia but to hear that now people are coming from india and perhaps even further further abroad to the temple or at least were uh, for a while is is really encouraging to me because i think it's a it's a meeting space that's so that's equally foreign uh, from everyone. It would be just as different for a man from India or a woman from Japan or from Africa or from America or Europe to come to Peru and experience this ancient culture. They've all, they're all traveling the same, I guess you might say, cultural distance to this, this meeting ground that's different from all of them and has so much to offer each of them individually. And I think that's very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I think that's, uh, that's, that's the hope for humanity and, and for a lot of the ailments we're dealing with and the, the, the politics and, and just the, the nature of human mind, uh, you know, the, the things that cause us suffering and separation is, is, is bringing, bringing people together, bringing traditions together, uh, and, and bringing people together and, and, and creating spaces that, that, that allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because all war starts from the same place, and uh, it's it's looking at people as other other, <laughs> and, and you know better as better than worse than, and uh, and and I think creating these spaces where we we go beyond that and we go beyond the differences and we tap into something that 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 puts us into that space of source. You know, as as you saw from your time at the temple, it doesn't matter where people come from or what their backgrounds are. The only thing people are left with in general is just a tremendous sense of compassion and companionship and, and a togetherness. So can you talk a little bit about what's happening in Peru and with the temple right now with the with the worldwide shutdown and, and maybe how people can help contribute to to the work that's going on there while things are just ramping back up, hopefully? Yeah, well, ever since uh, I think mid March, uh, Peru went into a, a very strict lockdown. I think it was the some people say the most strict in the world. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it really I would say devastated the economy. I mean, uh, people a lot of people haven't worked since then. Um, things do seem to be opening up. They've they've recently opened up uh, some international flights. So. Things do seem to hopefully be opening up again, but again, who knows what the future holds. But the the temple's been shut down since mid March, and the the tentative plan is to reopen in March of 2021. So uh, it will have been one year, um, but even that's tentative. I mean, it, it might even be pushed back a few months after that. I think, like it, like everywhere in the world, there's just a lot of uncertainty. But hopefully, this passes and and things do begin to 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 get back to a stage where these medicine centers can open and can function um you, you know I, I i think without revealing too much obviously it's been a, a struggle because if anyone knows uh, living in the jungle i mean the jungle destroys everything it's yeah. just a constant 
process of, <laughs> uh, you know, birth and death and, and eating things. And so obviously keeping, uh, keeping that infrastructure going while not having any capital coming in is, is very challenging. So I think when the temple does reopen, it's, it's only going to be a 12 day workshop, uh, six ceremonies, four maestros, which is a change from before where there was three different options. People could come for a 12 day, a, a nine day or a 23 day. But the idea is just to concentrate all the resources in one center. And, um, but I, I think actually the, the workshops, uh, once, once the, the temple reopens are going to be as good, but I, I think even probably better than ever. And hopefully that's the case for all of Peru and, and for this, this whole region, uh, that people are able to come and, and really experience the, experience these plants which are so important and you know as you've seen and then certainly from my experience working there it's uh it's really touched and changed the lives of countless people so hopefully it continues i hope so too and and I, as we're speaking i just i wanted to rec have a recall a specific memory of you i have from one or perhaps all of the nights of my ceremony just as the disorientation passes and I'm, I have a moment of calmness and clarity and I come back into my body in the space of the Maloka, I have these memories of you sitting on the mattresses at the center of the Maloka, smoking and being this extremely grounding presence in the moment, just the way that you were holding yourself or holding the space of really bringing me back to this, this, this feeling of strength and guidance. And you talked about being a bridge keeper and you served that function for me without saying a word just wordlessly by your posture and your being and your energy. And I remember, I remember that very vividly uh, now as, as we're speaking. And uh, I do hope that you're able to provide that for, for more men and more women as, as work begins to ramp up again, because it's so profoundly needed. Oh, well, cheers, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it's, it's been a pleasure uh, following your journey too. I, I know you were on that really long journey and it was, it was fascinating seeing, uh, seeing you on that and, and everything you were sharing. So uh yeah, man, it's been a pleasure, and I I, I I hope you keep up the good work because I I think you know all the things you're doing and getting this kind of information out is so important, and it's 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 very enlightening, and it's it's one of the things that that's changing the world is uh, is is people sharing and 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 getting different points of view out and sharing these really profound things that that we all have access to that that you know as as i was saying it they're they're a birthright so mm -hmm. why not take advantage of them? and uh yeah and and also you know i i recently started this podcast so maybe uh yeah. one of these days you can come on and then that'd be really fascinating to hear about your journey too and i think a lot of people would get a lot out of that i'd love that and and where can people go to find out more about you and what you do and your podcast and the various resources you have out there yeah, so I, I work at two places and the kind of the idea, although with COVID, who knows what's going to happen. But uh, the idea is, is splitting my time. So I work at the Temple of the Way of Light, which is an ayahuasca healing center. Uh, so dividing my time between there and the Sacred Valley here in Peru, where I work with a friend of mine running tobacco and tree dietas. Mm -hmm. we, we were trained in this tradition of working with tobacco and trees. So we offer dietas for people to, to heal or to learn from, from that system, which is, is quite powerful. So uh, they can find me at either the Temple of the Way of Light or here in the Sacred Valley. And then uh, during the pandemic, I had wanted to start a podcast for a long time, but I just 
I, I never really had the time, you know, often doing this work, it's pretty intense, 16, mm-hmm. 18 hour days, seven days a week. But with the shutdown, I, I had a lot of time. <laughs> Unfortunately, the signal wasn't too good in the jungle, but uh, being up here in the, the valley, it's a little bit better. The The podcast is called The Universe Within. Uh, there's a YouTube version, and then it's on all the, the major platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And the idea behind it is really to give voice to to, to the people doing this work day in and day out, the, the curanderos, the healers, the doctors, the facilitators, the teachers, the, the people who started these centers, uh, to really just give them voice. And, and, and I, I think as this work spreads, uh, you know, it's really important that, that, that people have a chance to hear from the people who are really deeply immersed in this work about what's really going on. And, um, you know, a lot of these people just have so much wisdom to share. Um, and so hopefully uh, people can get a lot out of that. And that's why I wanted to speak to you as you have such a unique insight or insight into this world to desensationalize it, to make it accessible and understandable for the average person, the average man who is fascinated by it and wants to learn more and potentially could get so much out of it. So thank you for sharing your wisdom and insight with us. Yeah, man. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And it's great to see you. It's It's been a long time. I can't, I can't believe it's been four years, but it, <laughs> I guess it makes sense. <laughs> episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.